I don't, I don't imagine that this will, if it does happen in the United States, it probably won't be for decades and decades, but mm. I def, I feel like gender studies should be like part of like a, the, like the core general education that you get, yeah. regardless of what major you go into, like one totally. of the core things that you need, at least like yeah. introduction to like gender studies to just be yeah. like, everyone needs to know about like civics, like yeah. everyone needs to know about exactly. this stuff. I feel like this should be like a critical theory part of a course that everyone has to take. So they do like an introduction to like race studies and gender studies and sexuality studies. And that would be nice. Hello, friends, and welcome to uh, Season 3, Episode 4 of So Poetry. Um, I would like to start off uh, right off the bat and apologize for any sniffles that you hear throughout the episode. My nose has been stopped up for the last, like, month and a half because the weather on the East Coast has been absolutely ridiculous. Um, I think it's going to be in the 60s in Baltimore today after it's been in, like, the 30s and the 20s this past week. Um, But... Regardless of that, um, I am talking to a newfound poetry friend, uh, Olivia Hall, um, who I know through a haiku friend. Um, and I think this is I, the first connection or the first network, haiku networking opportunity that I've had, um, which is really, really fun. So, Sophia, thank you very much uh, for setting this up. Um, but, Olivia, would you like to um, introduce yourself, talk a little bit about, like, what you're up to, what you're about. Sure. Uh, first of all, thank you so much for having me. Yeah. I'm really excited to just chat about poetry. <laughs> um, so I currently live in New York City, Woo. but have previous prior to about six months ago, always lived in New Zealand, uh, hence my non-American accent. <laughs> um, Which and Americans will eat up, by the way. That's really funny. The funniest part is just that I'm so used to being in rooms full of American accents now that I forget that mine actually sounds wildly different, (laughs) (laughs) but it actually sounds so different. Um, And I am a spoken word poet and also a gender studies major and currently working and being a poet, really. Um, I have been really excited to explore the spoken word scene in New York, which is pretty amazing, really. Yeah, I imagine and, that's a, one of the probably big hubs of spoken word yeah, stuff. Yeah, definitely. Uh, and a lot bigger than the New Zealand scene. <laughs> um, the New Zealand scene's amazing, but this is this is on sort of another level. Um, and so I spent my first five months here just sort of taking it all in mm-hmm. and soaking it up. But... I'm getting back to performing now, which is really exciting. Ooh, yay. Do you have any performances coming up anytime soon? I have one in two days, which I'm very nervous about. Oh, shit. <laughs> yeah. Um, um, give me... I spontaneously... Yep. No, I was going to say, at the end of the episode, give me the information Hopefully. for that, and I'll put it in the description. Um, cool. Um, yeah, how did, yeah. That, how did that come about? Was it... it was, so I was spontaneously... This, sorry, how did which come about? The... Um, the performance is it something that you had planned or is it just like we need no it's it's all sort of happened randomly insofar as it's actually a slam so it's a competition oh nice 
Um, and last week on Monday, I just randomly saw that there was a slam heat happening that night at the Bowery Poetry Cafe, which is very near to me. And I had made a promise of myself that in January of this year, I was actually going to compete in New York. And so I just spontaneously went that night. Um, and it was super cathartic because I went by myself. Usually my partner would come with me, but he had an assignment due, so he couldn't come. And it was exactly like four and a half years ago when I went to my very first <laughs> spoken word event in Wellington and I didn't tell anyone I was going and I didn't know anyone who was going to be there. Um, but it's kind of amazing to just go by yourself mm -hmm. and soak up the poetry and nerve wracking when you're competing. Um, but it went really well. And so now I have a final on Monday, basically. Congratulations. Thank you. <laughs> uh, but it's yeah, very nerve wracking. <laughs> exciting as well. So how, uh, like, what what do you do to prepare for something like that? Uh, yeah, I do a lot of practicing out loud is the main thing. It's okay. just it's a lot of a lot of my nerves honestly come from thinking I'm going to forget the poem, um, which is my worst nightmare. And I did forget the poem last week, and I freestyled on stage. And the main thing that's different is in New Zealand and the heat last week, every round you do a three minute poem mm. and that's what I'm very used to. So I like can tell when I'm writing a poem, when it's getting close to three minutes, basically. Oh, like I wow. know the length of my own writing and when it's getting to a three minute poem. Um, and my brain often when I know I'm writing a slam poem thinks in terms of like, this is going to be three minutes. Wow. Um, but in America, they don't always do three minutes. <laughs> and the competition on Monday has a one minute, two minute, three minute, and four minute round. Oh, nice. So at the moment, I am figuring out <laughs> how to do such a thing. I've written a one minute poem. I've edited a poem to two minutes. I have a standard three minute poem. I'm hopefully going to write a new poem for the four <laughs> minute round by Monday. <laughs> um, wow. Yeah. And I guess the other thing about that, the the nice thing about the fact that the rounds are set by time and the fact that I will only have one poem that fits into each round mm -hmm. means that I just do that poem. Whereas if I'm going to a slam, every round is three minutes, then you get to sort of play the strategy game. Oh. In terms of which poem you play first. After the first round, once you know, once you have an idea of what the judges are into you can switch the order of things that you're doing right yeah which is kind of nice but gives it a funny element on the night when there's that sort of gaming aspect involved right yeah Whereas, it's like, like you're you're playing like this. chess almost yeah. like setting up strategies of like okay well i can yeah. come out strong with this one and yeah. then i have like five or six more that i could pull from depending upon yeah. wow that's that's and that's exactly it. I would usually go to a th all three minute slam with five poems that I know. And usually I have three that I want to perform that are the ones I feel the most attached to at the time. Mm -hmm. But there's also the, a chance that the judge hates the judges hate my first one. Uh, <laughs> and then I have to rethink it. We also people get cut after every round. Oh, so you can't be guaranteed that you're going to get anything. So it's right. actually a matter of making sure that you get through each round, depending on how big the cuts are from round to round. Jeez. So you only need to win the last round to win, but you need to not get cut. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Like that is, it's that, intense. Is, that is such an, such a foreign way to think about yeah. like the, not 
not just the writing of poetry, but like the presentation of yes. of poetry. Yes. Wow. It's, it's like right. I, so like how do you feel about the or what what are your thoughts on I guess mm-hmm. like the the competitive aspect of slams or like are of spoken word presented yeah. in, in that environment? In that environment. Yeah. Um I think it's awesome for audiences because everyone is just super ramped up and watching a really good slam is just amazing. Um, Particularly in America and particularly here in New York, I found audiences get so into it and they're really vocal about the way they feel about poems, which is cool. Um, They boo the judges, et cetera, et cetera. (laughs) Um, But I think as a poet, I just have to, and I'm a competitive person, so okay. I like the strategy game. Like I enjoy the competitive aspect of it. Um, but you just have to be aware that the same poem that bombs one night could do amazingly the next week because right. yeah. it's five random judges from the audience. Yeah. I so think that's, so I, the closest connection I have to, I guess like that style of presentation of poetry mm-hmm. is submitting to, um, like residencies or like chapel mm-hmm. competitions or, you know, like contests like yep. that. The, the idea that or even just submitting a poem to like a literary magazine or yeah. something that's like, it's so judged. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, and it's so subjective that depending upon yes. like who reads it, what they have read over the course of the day, mm-hmm. what they've read in the last like five minutes, what their mood is when right. they read it. Yeah. That like, yeah. And that, that, like on a given day like if that poem wound up to them today like if the poem showed up in front of an editor today they're like nah not i'm not gonna do it whereas like tomorrow if it showed up they're like fuck yeah this is a great poem yeah um so i guess you do actually have to remember that in almost all forms of critiquing or judging of poetry yeah because it's just so subjective yes although i Uh, feel like i feel like there's a little bit of a i guess like the, the the immediacy of like a slam of that, yeah. that sort of judgment I feel like is mitigated a little bit when you submit or you send things out and it's like, yes. like a month later, like, Oh, I yeah. totally forgot that I sent this to them. Yes. It's like, Oh, okay, and whatever. It's also private, right? Like you get right. told that your poem's not going to be published and you're like, okay, I don't have to tell anyone I submitted. And mine is like five people hold up scores in front of an entire audience. <laughs> <laughs> right. In that moment, my, my, I call her my poetry partner from New Zealand because we toured together, but she's American. Mm -hmm. Um, Carrie Rudzinski, who's an amazing spoken word poet. Um, She always says that slam is just asking people to judge your feelings. Um, Wow. Which is really funny and true. And when she said it, I was like, that's exactly it. Because honestly, like with the personal poetry I write, I feel like I leave my heart on the stage when I walk off the stage and Mm -hmm. then five people rate it out of 10. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so well like what yeah. that's, so that's this, this is something that also that i've not like what are what are the criteria is there like for slams is there a set um like is every slam do do all do all do they do have all, the same criteria yeah like is there is there a, a like rubric like a universal rubric or a sort of like in general like these are the things that they're looking for or is it all totally subjected to the judge too so 
they're told that they're allowed to be very subjective. They're allowed to do it based on what they like. They're told that they should consider both the performance and the writing. Okay. And think about them. But most MCs of the slam will also tell the audience that it's their job to influence the judges. So you're also allowed to consider the audience reaction to a poem. Wow. If you want to. But if you want to be the judge that's like, I only care what I think, <laughs> you're also allowed to block the entire audience out and just give a score with the warning that you might be booed by the entire crowd. I feel like that's... I had actually, I had actually never got to judge a slam because New Zealand was a small poetry scene mm-hmm. and because I was a poet and knew everyone, it just wouldn't have made sense for me to judge ever. But the first poetry event that I went to here was a slam at the Neorican and they asked who wanted to judge. Um, so I became a judge for the night, which was so fun because (laughs) i'd never done it and because i know what i hate about things that judges do right so i tried to be really careful about what i how i judged has has the your stint of judging influenced or changed your subsequent performances no okay but all i'm assuming that it the the inverse is correct that your performances would vastly influence the way that you judge yes okay definitely huh being a slam poet meant that the way i I was i thought a lot about how i was going to judge right um the one interesting thing i would say about so obviously it's basically subjective Mm -hmm. the one thing that we do at slams to try and even out the way that you're going to judge the actual poets competing Mm -hmm. is to have what we call a sacrificial poet (laughs) Um, so the sacrificial poet performs as if they're competing and they go first Mm -hmm. and the judges score them. And then the idea is that the judges should use that as their metric. Oh, okay. Other people, because there's a classic thing people talk about in slam being score creep. (laughs) That judges get more and more into the poetry as it goes on. Oh, pull a one in a round you might have a harder time because they get more into the poetry and their scores go up or someone amazing comes in the second, in the middle of the round and then they all plummet really high score. And then they sort of all stay higher up as opposed to dropping back down to where they were beforehand. Oh, wow. Um, So people, so that's when I talk about the subjective nature, you really, you go to a slam being like, well, I go to slams being like, I know that if I pull the one, I'm, I'm going to have a harder time Mm -hmm. through this round. Um, but the idea is that the sacrificial poet should be your metric. Okay. So you shouldn't give the sacrificial poet a 10 because that would be ridiculous. Right. But the point is you're also unlikely to give the first three poets you see a 10 because you keep thinking something better might come. Whereas by the end you're like, I loved that poem, 10. (laughs) So I tried to be really careful when I saw the sacrificial that I remembered what I gave the sacrificial and I remembered the sacrificial poem. And I tried to genuinely use that as a metric too. Right. Everyone else. And as a result, I was probably the lowest scoring judge. But I don't really care if you're a low scoring judge as long as you're consistent. Right. Yeah. Also, the top and bottom scores get cut. Oh. And the three middle scores become your overall score for the round in case they accidentally gave scoring ballots to your ex-boyfriend or (laughs) your teacher or something, which is probably a bigger problem in New Zealand where everyone knows everyone. (laughs) Wow. That's yeah. like the the friend that I was talking about before we we started mm. who's doing the um like the at least at one point was doing like gender related yeah. to to pop culture stuff. Yeah. Um was I don't know 
it may have been it split split the rock or split this rock whatever like the big dc slam thing or some other event but he he was asked like he was there and he was asked to be a judge um and i i think that he said that he was the the most consistently low scoring judge Um, that was me (laughs) but but that's that sort of idea of like like he um he he comes from like the non-spoken word tradition yeah. so like his i think his way of viewing poetry or his idea of like you know what he he is a consumer of spoken word stuff but mm. he does not uh he does not write really for it he's more a yeah. poet on the page um yeah. but like his i i think it was a similar thing it's like his idea of what would be top tier mm. was just like he had that set and just yeah. you know like people may have gotten up but they didn't get yeah like close to it but that's i i so is is the cutting of the highest and the lowest like the top and the low score consistent among like slam practices or I is think that so and so far as it always happened in new zealand and it happened at the bowery slam last week okay new recon actually only had three judges for the one i was at so they would have kept all three scores because there were only three of us oh. um, but i think it is pretty common to have five judges and cut the top and bottom okay wow yeah so much stuff that I like the, the 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 thing that I'm like connecting this to I did when I was in mm. high school at the the Episcopalian high school that I finished mm. at um I had to take a speech class because yeah. it's, it was some sort of like elective issue that was like yeah. it's the only thing that fit and I had to take an elective and that was yeah. it um but I had to because I was in the speech class I had to go to a handful of like speech and debate competitions yeah um, and that's like, that's the closest I feel like I can get to, like, if I'm thinking oh. about like the blending of poetry and speech and debate gets you to like a slam. I think I should, I should tell you then that I was a competitive university debater <laughs> <laughs> for five years. <laughs> so I'm used to having my words judged. Right. Yeah. And prior to that, all through high school, I was a speech and drama student and a speech and drama competition student. So I performed other people's poems, mm-hmm. but also got judged for the way that I performed them. So I think spoken word came and slam came naturally to me because of that. Yeah. And so it doesn't seem so crazy for me to get up on stage and be judged based on what I say. Right. Yeah. As of, yeah. Because um, like. Because you're right. It is similar in that way to debating. Yeah. Wow. So I think, so for me, so I, I have a question that I, I will get mm. to, but like. I think for me, one of the wildest things is thinking about extreme audience reaction to poetry. Yeah. Because, like, I mean, you've you've been in the in the states for about a year, almost a year, closest to a year. Um, so I don't I don't know if you, if you have encountered this, but mm. um, for me, like, th- like creative writing or like writing as a as a viable option like novels and some biographies and some not creative nonfiction are kind of like that's that's where most of the money is and that's where most of the interest and stuff is too and then you kind of like continue to go down that funnel and down that funnel and you hit poetry towards the bottom that like it's not it's not super widely read outside Mm -hmm. of people who are already like literature like word, like yeah. language minded. Um, but even within that, that's like, there's not like 
poets that I thought were like big, you know, big name, quote unquote, big name poets. Um, I was at a residency in Vermont, um, and uh, Jane Hirschfield was one of my absolute favorite poets. She's like her, Mary Oliver, and um, Charles Ryder, like right at the top of my pantheon. And I was talking to some other poets while I was at their at this residency, and I mentioned Jane Hirschfield, and they're like, "I don't know who that is." I was like, "That." Like that's untenable for me, cause I, and that immediately <laughs> this this weird sort of like cracking of my perception that you know like even within poetry circles the poets that I thought of as as big name people are still not you know but all all of that to say that like the response to poetry that I've experienced even with re- to readings and stuff has been you know relatively subdued more introspective very like you know hmm yes hmm like oh hmm. So that I had to be in a, to be somewhere, and to like spit fire, and then to have an audience like cheer for you because yeah. of poetry is something that like I I cannot I cannot it's, even begin to imagine what that is like. It's addictive, is what it is. <laughs> yeah, I could definitely see how that would be the case. It's the adrenaline high is crazy in a slam, and so people are encouraged to engage while you perform. So that's where snapping comes from. Mm-hmm. So you snap when you like something that a poet is doing. Mm-hmm. And the way that my whole mind has adjusted when I'm doing poetry, like I pick up on which lines get the most snaps and I, I get so excited when a line that I really love gets a really good reaction from the audience. And that immediate feedback loop is just yeah. so few areas, even in the arts where you get such an immediate response and an immediate understanding that you're connecting with people. Yeah. I feel like it's pretty great. I really I feel like you really only get it in the other like the other performative arts. So like musician musicianship or yeah. being like performing music or like theater. Yeah. That there are those moments of um like after a really fucking killer monologue or like a like yeah. you hit the high note of it like you have a solo yeah. in this performance and you yeah. you fucking nail that high note. And the audience just erupts. Yeah. Like that sort of, that moan of like, ha, I, I got you. Um, Yeah. It makes it really weird when you do spoken word and there isn't a lot of response. (laughs) So New Zealand audiences are famously non-responsive. Okay. Comparatively. This was the most, so I went on tour with Carrie Rodzinski, the American poet, Mm -hmm. and we toured around New Zealand um, and we went into schools and we did performances at, I think, six cities you couldn't call them all cities (laughs) some of them were small Mm -hmm. Uh, and we knew that it was going to be interesting to see the reaction it was an explicitly feminist spoken word show that we put together nice um which involved us doing joint pieces and individual pieces uh and in particular we would go into rural-ish schools and they would just sit there and stare at us like 300 kids would just stare at us and we're doing poems that we're so used to getting responses to mm-hmm. that it is actually strange when you've learned a poem in the way that you know how you interact with the audience during that poem. You know where the laughs come and mm-hmm. and then there's nothing. <laughs> was it was it the type of nothing that was like a nothing because they weren't connecting to it or a nothing because they were they were so deep? I think we it? have both. Okay. So we've had kids who I could tell genuinely respected what we were doing, 
and were really interested. And you could often tell because we'd do Q and A's afterwards. And they, those are the ones that would ask they questions. They were really excited to talk to us. Mm-hmm. And you could tell. And there were always a few that would come up to us afterwards, who were clearly quite shy but wanted to tell us that they really loved it. Mm-hmm. And they were just people for whom. It doesn't come naturally. My partner comes to every spoken word thing and he is just he, like, is not a loud audience member. <laughs> um, and I'm always like, you have to snap and whoop more. Um, and I know it doesn't come naturally to Kiwis. So, and Carrie, when she moved there, was like, this is so weird. I just have to totally readjust what I expect from audiences. Yeah. Wow. Um, and so she would spend like the first two minutes of every one of our shows trying to hype our audiences and be like, you can re- react, have feelings. Um, but we definitely had one or two audience where I was like, I just don't think they get it. I just don't know if we're really connecting with these people. Wow. Um, so was that was that a big... To be expected when high school kids are forced to go to a... Yeah. Yeah. It was never like that when it was you choose to buy a ticket and come to this show because you know what you're getting into. Right, yeah, yeah. Um, so was that, was that like a big... Um, maybe not a big shock, but was that a shock for you coming to the u.s and having like either the first uh slam that you attended or the first one that you performed at to have that that more visceral and eruptive response yeah i sort of i really like it so i feel good because i feel like i can respond more to poems Mm -hmm. um but also i've watched so much spoken word online from the u.s and you can get the audiences um and i specifically remember muhammad hassan who's a great new zealand spoken word poet he was our national champ and he went to the individual world poetry slam in um, the States last year. And I remember him coming back afterwards and him coming to nationals and I performed and he just totally hyped me through the whole poem. He was so much whoopier and louder. And I came down and I was like, it's so obvious that you've been in the United States. <laughs> the rest of this audience is clicking politely and you're going, Oh yes. Like, Oh my God. Like you're reacting in a way that's just not Kiwi. <laughs> It's, Um, it's, it's refreshing to hear that the kind of, I guess, like stereotypical American boisterousness, at least in this one subset is like, yes, this is, this is how you should respond. Yeah. Yes. (laughs) That's true. Wow. That's awesome. So what, to the question that I was, I was eventually going to get to, um, how, like, where did poetry start for you? And then how... How did that transition into spoken word if you didn't start out that way? Yeah, so I didn't start out that way. Uh, Like I said, I was a speech and drama kid from when I was five. Wow. Which means constant process of, so I sat exams every year until I was 17. But I also, from the age of about eight or nine, competed probably in five or six speech and drama competitions a year. And that would mean going and performing pieces of prose and dramatic extracts that I would act but also performing poems and mm-hmm. there would be, there'd be a sonnet class and a <laughs> light verse class where you do a humorous poem mm-hmm. and a New Zealand class where you just do a New Zealand poem and an open poem where you do any poem you want. So I memorized and performed so many poems over that time that I sort of became someone who read poetry. Right. Really naturally. Yeah. It was almost by necessity uh, that you had to you had to consume poetry. Exactly. So I probably read more poetry than your average five or six-year-old <laughs> was reading <laughs> um, because I was reading them myself. Um, and so then when I – I was really lucky my school had sort of a writing class separate to English that you could take oh. 
which focused more specifically on your own writing, both fiction and nonfiction. Mm-hmm. Um, and I started writing poetry quite a lot in those classes from when I was about 14 or 15. And before that, I wrote my own classic, tragic high school poetry that rhymes and oh, yes. voices four line stanzas mm-hmm. um, I have like I'm pretty sure I have a whole collection of them that I call something hilarious like tears on a rose <laughs> um, <laughs> and they were, they were terrible um, but I wrote them and then I transitioned out of writing specifically rhyming poetry and I actually found that the easiest way for me to do that was to tell often quite truthful stories um, about my life and about the people around me which as it turns out is a lot of what spoken word is mm-hmm. um so I wrote that all through high school and then I moved to university and I was no longer doing speech and drama and I no longer had writing classes and I sort of didn't do any creative writing for probably a couple of years. Wow. And yeah, which was sort of crazy when I think about it, but I was going through a big transitionary period of thinking that I wanted to go to law school um, <laughs> and then discovering that I did not want to go to law school <laughs> um, and trying to understand how to be like a university writer. And then I discovered spoken word poetry online mm. so i discovered big i specifically discovered button poetry the who are probably the have the largest one of the largest numbers of subscribers who and who go around and film huge amounts of spoken word poetry and put it online and i just became obsessed with watching it and i was like this is like and i'd, I'd always loved performing and i really I, I missed writing but i really missed performing um because i'd done drama classes as well and I was like, this is some magical combination of the two things that I loved in high school, where it's basically a speech and drama competition, but with my own poetry. Uh, but I didn't think it existed in New Zealand. Uh, and it would have been small in New Zealand at the time, really small. Um, and then about six months later, I realized that there was actually a spoken word group that met once a month in Wellington, where I was living. Oh. Tree in Motion. Um, and... They're amazing. They're really big now. I yeah. So I showed up to my first ever spoken word event and competed in a slam because I was like, if I go and don't do anything, I'm just going to get freaked out mm-hmm. and then I won't. So I'll just go with these two poems that I don't even know if they're actually spoken word poems. <laughs> I yeah, how this is going to work. And I only told my partner who is my current partner, but who we lived in different cities at the time. So again, he wasn't there. And so I went and I did these two poems. And I think I came second and I qualified for the regional final from that. And it was when Wellington spoken with poetry was still reasonably small, but I just, the people I met there, I'm such good friends with now. I just totally fell in love from that first time. And then devastatingly a few months later moved to a smaller city in New Zealand <laughs> Dunedin, who really didn't have a spoken word scene. And so I got like pulled away from my spoken word family, but kept writing and actually got to represent Dunedin at nationals and then I went back to Wellington and I spent probably two and a half years on the committee so helping run poetry in motion in Wellington and going every month and suddenly New Zealand became this amazing hub of spoken word poetry because Carrie Radzinski and her partner Ken Arkind uh, who are both great poets moved to New Zealand (laughs) and gave New Zealand spoken word poetry this amazing boost Um, and we started doing things like sending Mo to the individual world poetry slam, which is the first time a New Zealand has gone to that competition. And now Sonia Renee Taylor, who is 
amazing. This is this, this actually I left this part out of my story, but my writing teacher in high school took us to the Auckland Writers Festival, and there was a spoken word poet who performed there. So that was the first time I ever heard of spoken word poetry. Wow! And it's Sonia Taylor who just moved to New Zealand for a while, <laughs> and she is the first spoken word poet I ever saw. And she wrote this. She did this amazing poem about the body not being an apology. And it was great. Yeah, so that was the first time I ever saw a spoken word. Um, yeah. And now, yeah, the New Zealand scene is great. I love the New Zealand scene. There are some exceptionally talented poets there. But now I'm here learning about <laughs> the scene instead, which is very, very, very different. Are there – so I've, like – I've admittedly experienced – um, and become in contact with a, a small amount of, of spoken word poetry from like, re, like us, other places, regardless of just my exposure to it has not been, has not been great, but there've been like certain, maybe not conceits, but certain like trends that I've, I've a couple of that I've picked up, um, with at least like the American scene. Are, are there things that you have that like New Zealand spoken word poets seem to do, and U.S. spoken word poets seem to do, or, or any, are there is there any overlap between them, or is it all like? There's a lot more overlap now because of the fact that so much of the spoken word poetry that you would access outside of New Zealand is American. Okay. So the style of spoken word poetry that you tend to watch as you're becoming involved in spoken word poetry, certainly for me, and I know for other New Zealand poets, is American. Okay. Uh, and I think that Ken and Carrie would say. And I agree that there are probably, as a result, New Zealand poets that are closer to the American style because that's what they watched. Right, yeah, that's what they, but they I cut also, their teeth on. Yeah, but I also think, and I, I think I'm probably closer to the American style, but I also think that that's not necessarily just because I watched and copied that style, but because performance was such a big part of it for me. Mm-hmm. And performance was more natural to me than writing was probably mm-hmm. and i think that often american poets are very big performers spoken word poets okay they're big on the stage yeah and some kiwi poets aren't i think kiwi poetry is sometimes not as political as american poetry spoken word poetry which is very political although there is political poetry in new zealand but specifically i also think we have this group of poets and we had a few in Wellington who are all wonderful, who are very, very, very funny. (laughs) Um, And they're very funny, but they're also quieter and their performance style is different. So my friend, Michael Howard's poetry, which I love, couldn't be more different from mine. It rhymes, but it is so clever and it is clever in a way that I often am like, Michael's poetry would work so well on the page as well and does work so well on the page as well because it takes listening to some of his poetry multiple times before you pick up how many clever things there are in his poems. Okay. And so he tends to be a slower performer than others because he slows down to let you into more of that language, Mm -hmm. the things that he does there, whereas I'm often quite loud and angry. (laughs) I can be soft, but I'm often quite loud and angry. Um, and I guess in America, obviously I've only been exposed to a tiny part of it in New York, but I'm not sure they would quite know what to do with Michael. Like I, he'd be so 
I think I think lots of people would love him, but I think he'd be so different to so much of what I've seen here. Mm-hmm. In that he would get up on stage and it would all rhyme, and it would be amazing and hilarious. But I doubt anyone else would be doing that. Okay. So there are definitely differences hmm. in that sense. Would Would you ever want your, or I guess, do you want like your the poems that you perform to exist yeah. on the page as well, or do you, for you, are they just like a, yeah, like a performative thing? Um, it depends. I am really working on my on the page craft. It's something I really want to become better at, and specifically thinking about how my poems look on the page because often when I'm writing, I'm not thinking very much about how they look on the page. Okay. I'm significantly more concerned about getting the words down. Mm-hmm. And for me, writing is very much an out loud experience. So I will like send my partner out of our one room apartment or be like, it's great. You're going out tonight. I'll write poetry mm-hmm. because um, I need to speak out loud right. to write my poems because yeah. I have to think about how they sound out loud. And Often that means if I'm feeling really brave or really inspired, just trying to freestyle parts of the poem or just start with a line I really like and try saying different things out loud. So often I'm just like slamming on my keys, trying to get down whatever it was I just said out loud so I don't lose it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm bad at coming back and spending the time <laughs> that I should editing them. Um, but I'm thinking about it more. So more and more spoken word poets are being published. Mm-hmm. I have a giant collection of books all of which um, the ones I have here are spoken word American poets. Mm -hmm. Um, So, and they can be beautiful on the page. And some of my poems I think about more as spoken word poems and some less so. And there's also a difference between the poems of mine that I think of as slam poems Mm -hmm. and the poems that aren't slam poems. So it, within, within your, your like spoken word poems. Yeah. For people who like, Liv can see me right now because we're on Skype. <laughs> but for those of you listening, I'm making diagrams with my hand in different spaces of my, my Skype screen. Um, so spoken word poems, poems on the page, and then within the spoken word poems, it's broken up to like slam and just regular. And just regular spoken word poetry. But there's also a crossover between poems that I can imagine that I like, of mine that I like on the page. Okay. And I think would still work on the page. In particular, I've tried with a couple that I've really liked on the page to think way more about how they look on the page. And mm-hmm. I've been playing around with that way more because I want to start thinking about trying to get poems of mine published, which is never something I've done. Um, and entering like spoken word chat book competitions and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I am thinking about that a lot more than I necessarily have always had to because no one's ever read my poetry on the page. Right. Yeah. And like when you, when you write the poems that are, I guess like you you feel that like these are spoken word or these are slam poems, do you do you break them up into like typical poetic structure like in stanzas and lines or for you is it just sort of like just getting it out as like a prose poem sort of a it's thing? It's definitely in stanzas and lines. Okay. And that it's very it's very free form poetry. Okay. So. I very rarely write structures where the stanzas are all of the same mm-hmm. length or anything like that. Um, but, and this is how I started writing probably when I was 14 or 15, where it's my story, 
but it's very free form, but it certainly has stanzas and lines. It's more a question now of the fact that I look back at my poetry and I'm like, it all looks like that. And I would like some of it to not look like that. Okay. Um, and I would like to play around more with having clearer structures for stanzas. Yeah. It's, it's honestly hard because when I read my poetry on the page, I have such a clear way that I think about the way that I say it. Right. And I know that when people read poetry on the page, you get to decide how it sounds in your right. own head. Mm-hmm. And my instinct is to try and make the page make people read it the way I would say the poem when I don't necessarily think that's the best thing for all of my poems on the page. Right. Yeah. I think it would be better to try and give them a different life on the page where people get to read them however they want. Yeah. Do you like, do you give line breaks and stanza breaks particular, like, is there a set amount of breath or weight that you give them when you are, performing them or does that does that get fluid because there's there's a, um, there's a poem. It gets fluid. the funniest thing is that often i will come back to a poem i've written and try to edit it to fit more with how i now perform it so oh. that i have a better version of it because i'll write it and i'll put sometimes i'll write poems and i'll be like i don't want that poem to have any punctuation so mm-hmm. I, I do poems like that even though i'm obviously going to breathe at certain points when i'm reading <laughs> right. um, but sometimes i'll have put breaks in or I'll put full stops in and I'll come back and look at the poem now that I have a set way of performing it because it takes a few times before I'm like that poem is ingrained in me Mm -hmm. and then I'll look at it and go oh that's not right I don't actually pause there right that's actually a carry on that's actually where the break is Mm -hmm. and I'll sometimes edit the poet the poem to fit more with how I now naturally say it which I actually think is a good form of editing for me because I think it 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 fixes where I think line breaks should be and things like that. Right. Yeah. And I feel like that, like, I feel like spoken word poets might have a little bit of a benefit, like what you were talking about, how, um, like potentially contouring some of your poems on the page to match Hmm. up with how you, how you say them. Like if you, if you develop that sort of like that, this, that this phrase well, let's say this line, like before when you wrote it the first time, you broke it, like you broke it somewhere in the middle. And then upon revisiting, you're like, oh, I actually don't say it like that. I say it as one thing. So this is one unit. Like if you begin to develop that, like you could transfer that into the writing style and have a set, like at least for you. Yes. And it's like if people have your book and then hear you speak it, they can begin to match up a little bit with like. Yeah. Because um, I feel like there's. Like poetry on the page for me, like there's like when I when I write poems, um, there's a there's a particular way that I that that I experience them like in my head when I'm writing them. Mm -hmm. Um, And I do try to like write them as if um, like I do try to write them out on the page to to match pretty closely to how they like the pausing and um, because like lines for me are. Um, like more or less complete thoughts or like complete images. Um, sure. I I do in jam stuff, but it's like in reading it, it like there's weird sort of natural. I mean, I'm I'm sure that you've heard a little bit of of it while we're talking, like weird sort of natural pauses that I put in between yeah. the things that I say, and I think that that uh, massively reflects in the poetry that I that I write. Uh, but I know mm-hmm. that. 
when I read them, even though they appear in my head and they appear in me in a very particular way, when I read them aloud, it's still sort of nebulous. Like, there's not a set, like, this is how this thing is supposed to sound. Um, yeah. As opposed to my music, which is like, there is a very sure. particular way that, like, this is supposed to sound like this. Yes. Um, and I feel like That's with, really And I feel like with spoken word, like... That's like the same differences between your right, your poetry and your music. I yeah, think because like when I know I'm going to slam it or I know I'm going to perform it a lot. Yeah, that it's like you I, you lock it into uh, and, that. And I, I perform, yeah, and I perform my poems the same way more or less every time. Yep. In the same way you would perform a song. Yeah. There isn't any radical changes in how I present a piece because it is actually in my mind like a song. Right. It's like a musical piece. Yeah, and I, I so I think that like. I think that there is a benefit for some poems being written, being written more, I, I guess, more or less the way that I write them. That it's like the, you get them close, but there's no sort of like, like there's interpretation of like how, like Different. where, yeah, like where you could break. Like there's a, um, there's a poet that I love named uh, Leon Lee. Um, mm-hmm. And one of my favorite poems by him is Have You Prayed? It's up on like poetry.com or whatever, like the poetry. Okay. Um, and there's a recording of him reading it. And the poem itself mm-hmm. is, I don't know, it's maybe like a, in the book, it's maybe like two pages long or so. Yeah. Um, um, but, but when he reads, when he it, reads it, it takes, it him, takes like him like two, two close, to, close three to three minutes, minutes because he because has, he has um, uh, each he, line break, each comma, each period, each stanza break has a particular amount of like pause that he gives it. He and he like... And when I read a stand, like the letter, right? And it's like when I when I first read the poem, I read it a lot faster than he does. And then after hearing him read it and going like going back to it, it's like I now know it's like oh, I need to take. I'm supposed to take my time with this. That's really interesting. And you know, it's like with with stands with line breaks and stanza breaks. It's like that's the sort of visual cue for your eye. That's like there's a pause or there's a little bit of something that's happening here. Because you're not continuing to go down the line. It's like you go and then your eyes have to travel. Yeah. That, and that to me, like the, the, the whole performative aspect of, of mm. poetry is something that's still, um, I don't know. It feels like it's a new frontier or like it, it, on the one hand, it feels like it's a new frontier because at least in the United States, like poetry, like I said, is not, um, not really viewed in a <laughs> super high regard. Um, but it also feels like it's very much a returning to the kind of the original role that poetry played in culture and in society. That like you are the the oral story keepers and yes. the, the main, um, and then like the main avenue that you would present this information to people is verbal. Yes. Without the benefit of writing down, um, which, like to me, like explains so much of the old or like the, the sort of traditional views of like what poetry mm. traditionally is seen as like it's rhyming. It's very structured. There's certain mm. things that like, because all of that makes it easier for people to remember when they just hear it. Yeah. And once it's shifted into the realm of like, Oh, I could actually spend like an entire day looking at this one particular poem like, yeah. in my hand on a page. I feel like that, um, I think that radically shifted how poetry is thought about. I mean, it presentation wise, uh, almost implicitly, but, um, 
But it made it academic. Yes. When it was on the page. Right, because you could you could critique it now. Like you yes. had you had the thing that you could yes. return to and that you could nitpick that you could like present yeah. instead of um you know just an experience where you hear it right. once and that's it. Right. And that instead of like like, because there's like music appreciation classes in college. Like I've I've yeah. took a couple of them. Um, I was in like an early, like 19th century jazz appreciation class, which was weird. Um, but I feel like if poetry had stayed purely spoken, then you would probably have classes like that now, where it's not so much, yeah. like it's the analysis of it, but it's not so much the like, um, yeah. You know, like writing groups and critiques and stuff. It, it's yeah. it's more so just like we're going to we're going to sit down and listen to this thing and then analyze yes. it to see how it works and why it yes. does what it does. Yes, I think the important thing to me about the existence of spoken word poetry is how accessible it makes poetry because of that. Yeah. Um, I think there are lots of people who would fear having their written poetry critiqued by people as though it was supposed to fit particular things or look a certain way mm-hmm. in a particularly for people who aren't naturally academic or who um, aren't naturally page writers. Right. But given that spoken word is built so much around telling your story, I just think that it's opened poetry up in some ways. Oh, yeah. And I know that there will be people who think that, and there certainly are, I've, someone in New Zealand wrote a raging article about how spoken word poetry isn't poetry. Um, but, I mean, music's allowed to have lots of different yeah. categories. I just don't really know why poetry can't also have that. Well, I think, um, I, so this was, this was related, I think, to, um, there was an article in The Guardian. I don't know if you saw this, that, was, that came out recently talking about... Um, Rupi Kaur? Yeah, Rupi Kaur and... Uh, Kate Tempest. Yes. Um, about that there was... Who um, I love. <laughs> the, Kate oh, Tempest is amazing. Fuck. It was, I think, like the PN, PN Review or something like that did a <laughs> had a pretty scathing response to like that that type or that style of poetry. Yeah. Um, and I feel like... It's funny. I don't even... Like, they're not even anything alike. Right. When, yeah, <laughs> but even even that like the connection of or like with the emergence i'm assuming i'm imagining with like spoken word as a major mm. like a major avenue or a major presentation mm-hmm. force of poetry there was probably an mm. extreme amount of backlash bet- from the like the old guard yes like academic poets Definitely. because one i'm imagining it was a lot of really young people that were getting yep. into that style to what made poetry a hell of a lot, like you said, a hell of a lot more accessible um, and generated the type of buzz that like traditional in, in doesn't get, right, yeah. you know, like traditional up, you know, it's like old yeah. white men poetry. I also think it freaks old guard poets out because spoken word poetry is often just so personal and it's not always metaphors to tell you about my life. It's just my life. Right. And it's sometimes the like I I worry sometimes because I I often think that I use very simplistic language and I think that people who are like old guard poets would read it and be like this isn't a poem this is just some words yeah um, 
but I, I try not to care about that that much because I, I do think it's really important and really accessible. I've actually seen both Ruby Core and Kate Tempest live. Um, and I mean, they're extraordinarily different. Um, Kate Tempest is, I mean, obviously basically a rapper. Um, oh. So she, she also is a rap artist, in fact. Oh. And a lot of her poetry has, in fact, that's also a thing that's very different about America. People who are into rap, are rap artists, will compete in spoken word and in slam with things that are essentially what I would consider to be raps, mm-hmm. which I've really seen in New Zealand, which is awesome. And it's a, it's a way that, that spoken word poetry is much more diverse here, um, yeah. which is cool. Yeah, so Kate Tempest is, I, I went, when I went to her show, it was a gig. Like I was in a mosh pit. She was rapping and doing spoken word on and off. So she had a band there for when she was rapping. Mm-hmm. But the same stories would be told both in her raps and in her right. spoken poems. So it was like this one big long story, which was so cool. Oh, shit. And so far it's like she sometimes uses the same characters or like you can see that there are this mm-hmm. crossover and links and yeah, it's awesome. She's, she's amazing. Um, I saw Rupi Kaur at the Auckland Writers Festival last year. And Rupi Kaur gets a lot of slack. She gets way more hate articles written about her than anyone else who's famous for spoken word poetry. And I think people particularly pick on it because it's so often bite-sized. So it's often, she writes very, very tiny little poems. Mm -hmm. And people are like, that's just one thought. Like, that's not really a poem. And it's not my favorite poetry in the world. But there are bits of it that resonate with me. And right. that's really the point is that she's resonated with young women in particular mm-hmm. all over the world. Um, but when I saw her, I, her performance style was nothing like what I expected. And I found it really, I found her quite difficult to listen to. I didn't like her performance style as much as I actually liked her poetry. Really? And that was one of those instances where I'd never heard her speak, but I'd read her book. Hmm. And then I heard her speak and I was like, I prefer this in my head. <laughs> um, and I like her poetry. I don't think she deserves the like she gets, but it was a weird experience mm-hmm. as far as, and actually at the show, she did some longer pieces, which would never make it into her books because her books are all very short. Mm-hmm. So she, she called her sort of spoken word pieces, which were closer to three minutes. Um, and she has a very sing songy voice. So she's very like methodical, and mm-hmm. quiet and very, very gentle. And that's lovely, but it's, it's not my favorite thing. Um, but regardless, I just think they've both obviously connected with huge numbers of people, which angers people who think that their poetry should have connected with huge yeah. numbers of people. Well, that, there's a, um, so the, the friend of mine who's working through his PhD, yeah. um, is the one who posted about the article and then posted links to like the yeah. original review. And then um, I think Kate McNish was one of the other people that the reviewer yeah. like took to task and yeah. that, that poet's response. Um, and so in most of the, I'm connected to in, in Baltimore um, a large like writing community because the university of Baltimore has a pretty, um, a pretty awesome like MFA program. So most of the people that I know in Baltimore are writers and they were all on this thread. All, at least all the poets, at least were talking about yeah. like, um, just like what's happening in, in this article. And yeah. somebody brought up the point that, um, 
that it seemed like there was a lot of like thinly veiled jealousy from the original yeah. reviewer that you know Rupi Carr has sold has been like the the best seller for like a year or how many yeah. months, um, which is a a really interesting sort of like. So like I I run a a very very small um, publishing house publishing outfit yeah. I don't know I I make I make books I make and publish books, cool. um, and it's been a weird. I feel like this is related because I've I've had to to deal with my own sort of ideas of what is like what makes my press successful, mm-hmm. um, and like for most entrepreneurial businesses underneath like a capitalist system the thing that makes you successful is like selling the most shit that you can yeah um and like right from the get-go that's gonna be really difficult because one handmade chapbooks two poetry so like of the people who read poetry the people who read handmade chapbooks like that that unit has shrunk significantly um but there's also like it took me because I've I've done some like uh, literary festivals and stuff and have you know like sold my books um, and I've tabled with other presses that have sold like better than I have on a given weekend mm-hmm. um, you know like a good weekend for me would be maybe like seven books and they could clean up with like you know they sold twenty or thirty yeah um, so it took me it took me a while to to get to the point of realizing that's like the thing that that like my demarcation of success is getting my books into the hands of people who appreciate them. Yeah. Um, and I've had like the last like three festival, like lit fest book fest, whatever that I've done. Like there has been at least one person that like you, like you're the type of person that I want to, that I want to read my books. Um, so it's weird to see, like to see people like Ruby Carr and um, Kate Tippest reaching millions and millions of people and to not like to, to initially have that little bit of like, that jealousy of like, it's like, yeah. Oh fuck. Yeah. Damn totally. it. But then to allow that to like, to pass and to realize to, yeah. for me personally, realize like, well, that's great. It's like, that's yeah. millions of more people fucking reading yes. poetry. Like that's, like that yes. should be the end game is just also my my like natural instinct to be like why are you specifically picking on young female writers right just, yeah like that's that's the other very much there. that article is just about young women yeah and i find it hard not to be like some of your jealousy is that rupee cool got famous because of instagram and i just don't know if you can handle that a young woman made herself famous on instagram and that made her work famous um and kate tempest is it's so bizarre to me because Kate Tempest is actually very much in the mainstream. Mm-hmm. She's, she's nominated for a Brit award. She's won national prizes in the UK. The UK love her. She's not, she's actually considered very differently to Rupi, I think who like within her own community, Kate, people love Kate Tempest. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it is hard not to be like, there's quite a lot of jealousy there that <laughs> probably shouldn't actually how people think about. Yeah. They work, and like I, yeah, I don't, I don't know. It, there was a, I want to say that there was another article written about Rupee 
um, that came out relatively recently. That was essentially the the I think that like the kind of final point of the article was like, eh, this is not this is not really my cup of tea of poetry, but like, good on her for reaching as many people as she sure. did, and like in also bringing up that like. There's a lot of like young women and young women of color that are writing poetry or catching a shit ton of flack for this. And like yes. maybe there's different criteria that like we need to or like to to look at yeah. to look at like Instagram poets and yeah have them be um like you know they are being judged through 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 with rubric poetry instead of, instead of trying to meet it it's like oh this is maybe yeah. another like this is something else that's happening and we have to deal yeah. with this or look at this or experience this differently than we would like other like older yeah. forms of poetry totally totally yeah that sounds like an article i would basically if i was writing an article about <laughs> like she's not my dream poet but yeah i she's pretty brave i think she's pretty rad and i think a lot of young women will write because oh yeah poetry and think i can do that right. and which like that is overall good <laughs> yes and that like that to me is like if you were if you were really concerned about like poetry and the state of the arts um you'd think that was great <laughs> yeah it's like you should be rooting for this like your end yeah. goal should be like well yes like i will do like anything that gets people reading anything that gets people writing anything that gets people you know, like, because I, I feel like at, at its core, um, like, uh, poetry is, like, the art of sharing emotional experiences or, like, emotional truths. And, mm. like, that is a the one of the best ways to build up empathy and it build up understanding between people when you're actually dealing. It's like, oh, yeah, I, I like, I felt that or, yeah. like, I know exactly, you know. Yeah. Um, which for me is like this is that's a net good like that's a positive thing that's a Definitely. you know I also think that's I think that's something people like about going to spoken word shows in that you react to something that you really like and you get to go and talk to the person who wrote it afterwards mm -hmm. like the conversations I have after spoken word shows are just my favorite thing in the world like there's always just one person that's picked up on one random piece of your poem that sticks with them. Mm -hmm. And they're bizarre things. Like they're, they're random little nit, like sections of your poem that someone's like, I've done that. Or <laughs> I, have, I have a poem that I haven't performed in the States because I'm scared. There are like too many New Zealand references that people <laughs> won't get. Um, and it's also like the strangest of my poems. And so far as, most of my poems are genuinely crafted and this poem is genuinely just me reading a list of things that have made me cry <laughs> um, because I'm very, I'm very much a crier. Um, and my partner pointed out that I cry at really ridiculous things. So I started writing them down um, and I just read them as a poem. And it's good because a lot of my poem is very like heavy, mm -hmm. body positivity, feminist, mm -hmm. intense yelling at you. <laughs> and this is just me like, reading this list that makes everyone laugh and it's just really nice mm -hmm. and it's always someone who comes up to me afterwards and it's like i'm a crier too or like <laughs> i have also cried about this ridiculous thing and i cry a lot about sports and that's why it doesn't really work in america because new zealand sports and american sports are very different and i talk about specific sports players and sports teams in new zealand that make me cry um but it's such a nice poem and that it's really easy to get people to connect with mm -hmm. And it's really different from what most of my other materials about. So it's nice that 
it's it usually connects with like a different group of people in the audience right yeah so oh that one that was the one for me (laughs) that's the poem i get um and that's basically the nicest thing in the world it's just it, it makes me want to write more because i get to interact with people who immediately say nice things yeah which is incredibly like it builds my ego but that is like useful in terms of wanting to keep writing right yeah like to have that um yeah to have that that feedback and to, to know that you're mm-hmm. not just sending this shit out into the void that there's actually yeah there's somebody on the other the other end that's receiving the things that you're putting out yeah um, totally like one of the related to like that that sort of feedback um one of the best moments in my both poetic and like publishing life. Um, I was at a, like a arts fest. Like there, we had, there's a um, really well-known um, like art college in like yeah. right in the middle of Baltimore. Um, and because I took a class there, I'm considered like part of the MICA art community. Um, yeah. And so every winter uh, they do an art market, which they set up like, in one particular building on campus, they like students can apply like lots of um, like printmakers and ceramic students who have just made a shit ton over the year. will like, they'll do it like right before Christmas. So like, you know, holiday presents, buying stuff, you know, whatever, but just as a way for like students to have an experience of like you, like, even though like commodification of your arts, not like the end all be all like, yeah, you you could make some scratch doing this a little yep. bit, um, so I was I had my books on display there, and there was a young woman um, who came up who was just kind of like perusing stuff, who was wearing all blue, like everything that she wore that she had on that day was blue, and she had a little blue burn bluebird uh, like brooch pendant on her on her collar, um, and three of the five books that I've published are blue, like the covers are blue. Yeah. Um, just, I, just because I don't, you know, yeah. that, that's, that's how they fit. Um, so we started talking, um, and she picked up two, no, she picked up, uh, one, she picked up two of the blue books, one of which I was my own. Um, and yeah. one was like the first other person that I officially published with the press. Yeah. And, um, she said that she was going to give the like my collection to a friend of hers just because she thought that it would like her friend would appreciate it, which was like, oh, this is like that's great. Um, but I gave her one of my cards and I was like, you know, uh, I would love to know what you thought about the poems once you get finished reading them. So like, you know, shoot me an email if you feel like it. Mm-hmm. Um, so about like I I didn't hear anything from her and I kind of forgot about like get telling her that. Um, for me, like a week and a half, two weeks or so, and then she sent me yeah. an email, um, and I have it pinned above my desk in my room where I do all of my like b- book arts official business stuff. Yeah. Um, and she like she got it. She like she wrote she was she wrote to me and she like it was just like she she connected to my writing in such a way that's like, that's like, that's it. That's how I want. That's how I want to get people. That's amazing. And it was just like, like if I never sell another book, if I never like write another poem, like, you know, you like I did it like this, this is what I want. And I like, I feel like every, everybody, I feel like 
art, most artists or artists are probably more susceptible to this have like those sort of delusions of grandeur of yeah. like being of making it big and being famous and you know yeah. like i i have had those and it was after that moment that i realized that it's sort of like a backwards that like i would like some renown and some fame only because it would mean that my books have the possibility of getting into more and more meaning more people are like her yeah and it's like that it's like that to me is like that's what i want like i want somebody to sit with this book and to to arrive at some vocabulary or some some image yeah. or some understanding yeah. of something that they have known or that they've had existing in them for all of their life yeah. but it's just now that like oh that's what that yeah. is yeah Oh, totally. Um, one of the strange things about coming to New York is that obviously it's New Zealand is small. Mm -hmm. um, but one of the craziest things about that experience is Wellington is particularly small. Mm -hmm. Well, that's not quite true. It's the capital city, but it's nowhere near as big as Auckland where I grew up. Mm -hmm. um, but it meant that there was this weird phase where a couple of the poets in Wellington were performing so much that there was just like a small amount of fame within Wellington, which is a really strange experience. Insofar as like, that's not probably a thing most poets experience. Um, and I guess it happens more so for spoken word poets because you see their faces. So you're more likely to actually recognize the person. Yep. Um, but the craziest experience I ever had was that I went out for dinner when my dad was in, was visiting me, my dad and my two brothers and my partner and my cousin. Mm -hmm. And we had this big dinner that went on for multiple hours. And we had this amazing waiter who dealt with us the entire night, even though we were probably nightmarish customers. And at the very end, he was like, I'm leaving now because my shift's over. So someone's going to take over from me. And then he leaned across the table and was like, but I've just wanted to tell you since you came in that I just love your poetry. And that I just, I, I knew who you were as soon as you came in. And I just, I've, I've like, he paid for my dessert and he was just like, so excited to see me. And it was a young guy. Like it must've been a teenage guy, like not the sort of person that I ever thought of as being my target audience for mm -hmm. my poetry. And like, I basically, I mean, I'm a crier, so I cried at the table basically. <laughs> it was just the craziest experience. And it was like that. It was one of those moments where I was just like, I'm done. Like I'm good. <laughs> I never do a show again it was ex it was exactly what you experienced with that it was just like I touched some 18 year old boy who yeah like thought for three minutes about feminism and that's just crazy to me so did, did that encounter or experience make it onto your list of things that have made you cry no but it should I have <laughs> I, I'm like keeping track for a new one <laughs> like I'm, it definitely needs to be updated because I cry so often every now and again i cry and then either me or my partner's like we should write that down <laughs> that's a good one like that was ridiculous but the problem is that there are, there are still like repeti repetitive things that i cry about over and over again like my favorite sports teams and things okay so i wanted to ask you about that but before we get there um that random waiter and sam yes. if y'all are listening thank you so yeah. much um you have made two two poets very very happy Spring and content head. with their art Okay. Extremely happy. Sports <laughs> events, sports genres, top, like, what are, what are, what are your top? Yeah. What, what are my, like, favorite sports? Mm-hmm. 
Oh, um, I am a diehard rugby fan because I, I'm a New Zealander. I had a feeling. Of course. Like a, <laughs> like a diehard rugby fan. Um, specifically for the team where I went to university in Dunedin, the Highlanders, who are my favorite team in the world, and specifically for one player in the Highlanders, <laughs> who is my favorite sports player of all time, Lena Sokawanga, who I who is in the crying poem like four times because I just love him. Um, and he actually announced really recently that he's moving from New Zealand to the UK. So he's leaving both the teams that I love. And my partner was so scared to tell me when he saw the news because he, and I like had a full blown meltdown. So that has to go on the list. Um, I was so upset. I felt like he had personally betrayed me and <laughs> we don't know each other. <laughs> I was like always, it was, and New Zealand's small, so I was always very aware that there was genuinely a chance this poem that makes me sound like a great man <laughs> was going to get back to him one way or another because I have friends who went to school with him and things. It's, it's tiny. Um, you should you should send him like a link to the an MP3 recording of that poem <laughs> with the updated of the personal with betrayal. With the updated, I found out you were leaving and now I'm broken. <laughs> um, the only small glimpse of beauty in that is that he's moving to the uk and i am also moving to the uk oh so we can go watch him but also we could be friends because new zealanders who don't live in new zealand are always friends like that's the rule <laughs> we have to be friends with new zealanders outside of new zealand it's go it's going to happen uh, so there's that i also really love english football okay so soccer for yes. americans I was um, I was wondering if there's a particularly English style of football, and I was like, no, I think it's just that you call gridiron yeah. football. Um, yes, but also I specifically follow the English Premier League. So, are there yeah. have there been any uh, American sports that have that have encroached into your heart of things that you enjoy? Um, well, or... because I'm a New Zealander and we have to support all New Zealanders, I obviously now follow the will like support the Oklahoma city thunder basketball team because there's a New they Zealander have a, other team. Yeah. Steven Adams, who's the first, I believe, am I right that he's the first Kiwi <laughs> to play in the NBA? I'm pretty sure he is. Yeah, I think so. I think he's the first ever Kiwi to play in the NBA. Wow. And in the most Kiwi way ever, he's also the brother of another one of our most successful ever sports stars <laughs> in New Zealand. So that's how we roll. Um, so honestly, like every New Zealander, who has got into basketball in the last three years supports OKC because he plays for them. And we're very loyal like that. <laughs> I went to a baseball game and was like sadly disappointed. It was quite boring. Base like baseball is it only, it was cricket and I hate cricket. Yeah. So like listening to baseball, like listening <laughs> to a, a good announcer, uh, do play-by-plays on uh, with like on the radio for baseball yeah. is the only way that that's palatable at all. Yeah, so it's really not a sport you should go watch in a stadium then no. because you want a commentator. No, yeah. So I yeah. like I've been to the. Um, that's not good. I, I'm from I'm from New Orleans and we had a um, we had a minor league team that was like the feeder team to the Houston Astros. So right. because there's like the stadium just right off of one of the big highways, yeah. there was always, you know, like events. My school went there yeah. a couple of times. Like I was in the scouts and we went there. Yeah. Um, but like we would be sitting in the stadium or like in, in the seats and there'd be people yeah. that would have little like AM radios. FM radios to listen. Do that. Yeah. To listen to the commentator because yeah. like the only, the only reason that you go watch baseball is to uh, pay exorbitantly priced 
or exorbitant prices for beer for and, food and yeah and, and just yeah. terrible food for you and to like generally yeah. hang out because unless the baseball is the equivalent of cricket in new zealand then because yes. you just go to that to like hang out with your friends yes and watch a very slow game of sport yes um yeah yeah, it's no. My partner just corrected me that there have been three NBA players from New Zealand, so I oh. feel like I failed on my sports knowledge. <laughs> so he must be the first in a long time. So. Oh, the other ones were shit. So oh. the reason he's famous is because he's good. Oh, one of them's the manager of the Brooklyn Nets. There's a Kiwi who's the manager. Of, well, now we have to go to a Brooklyn Nets game. <laughs> Um, we're actually going to a Knicks game next week, so that'll be my first live American basketball experience. I, so I think if, the, if an American sport's going to take hold of me, it's definitely going to be basketball. Yeah. Because why, why are your sports so slow? And so, like, why are there so many stoppage times? Because gridiron just appears to move at the pace. Oh of god! Like, so the only the only good American football is college football. College football is fantastic. That's actually better. Yes. Okay, interesting. I think because so my my hypothesis for this is like my I I was never a big sports um, participant or watcher, but my like my family um, like New Orleans has a a team that for the vast majority of my life sucked, and that was the like they got good. Yes, they actually they won a Super Bowl. Oh my god! And they were in the playoffs until last. Uh, week, last two weekends ago. Um, if they if they had won, they would have been in like the semifinals. But they got they got beat in like a crazy last minute touchdown scenario. Yeah. But so my hypothesis is, um, college football like the the players have something to prove because they're not professional yet, so they're trying yes. to show off. So you get more. Like, oh, like more spectacular plays, more interesting plays, more oh, like, um, just like more stuff happening. Whereas wow. with professional stuff, it's like, it feels like it's the same sorts of plays, the same sorts of things over and over again. And then yes. you have like, oh, um, you know, like, oh, we're, it's, they got tackled. We're going to take like a minute to set, to reset the play yeah. clock and then go and then, oh, somebody else gets tackled. We're going to. Because yeah. like if you if you actually watch a football there's a football game there's really like even within like each of the fifteen minute quarters there's yeah. really only like seven or eight minutes of like actual okay, so play. play. Yeah, and that's then, terrible. And then the rest of it is just the like the surrounding shit that happens that's and then not- commercials. So like that's why I like English football. There's there's no stopping. There's yeah. just a lot of playing. So and in fact, are, if they're stopping, they add stoppage time at the end so that you've definitely played 45 minutes and a half. But <laughs> so I, I think, really feel like you get more bang for your buck. Yeah, but I think that if, if there's any sport that that would match the sort of like not slow pace, it would probably be yeah. basketball. Yeah, um, okay. And which is so why which is why the scoring in that is so fucking high because it's just constant yes, back and forth constant. of like yeah. – like that's true see i hate cricket but my partner doesn't has not previously really liked english football because it's true that very little scoring happens whereas basketball is exciting because people are constantly scoring for right which is i feel like the maybe one of the main differences between like americans and other countries that like soccer there's a lot of really amazing stuff that happens yeah but it's very like um it's technical and you yeah that like there's lots of steals and there's like sets up for things and you know like yeah 
Um, whereas with basketball, like there are those things, but it's like you can you will get sometimes like over a hundred and fifty points yeah. in a in a game because there's just like just shit. Oh, I also went to an ice hockey game and that was pretty fun. Ooh, yeah. I can't. That seems very American of me. So. I did it for the experience. Really, I want to go to a college game, but my partner studies at an arts university, not a sports university. They don't have any sports teams, do they? Oh. NYU. Um, they have a basketball team. That's going they to play have a Columbia basketball team. Showdown, so. Oh, against Columbia. But I want to gr- they don't have a gridiron team. What they do have is one of the most successful spoken word teams. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, that's – I mean – if you can't if you can't have football, American football, you might as well have spoken word. Anyway, the fact that I love sports so much is probably why I like slam poetry because it's basically like a sport oh. version of poetry, right? Yeah, yeah. Because it yeah, that's like it has the strategy. It has the it actually has a lot of the aspects of a sports game. Yeah, and like and the, definitely the fact that you have like the audience there that you can yeah. draw energy. Like you like yeah. you suck energy out of. Totally. I also cry at slams, so it all lines up, really. Have you have you cried while you were performing a piece? Yes. Has that helped or hurt your score? Oh, in a yeah, in a slam, I've only like got very close to crying. I probably haven't like I've okay. been like actually crying. I might have had like tears in my eyes. Um, usually, it helps my score. Usually, it means I'm like the most connected to a certain poem. Mm. It's never. I don't think it's ever hurt me. If I cried every poem, the audience would probably start to be like, give it up. <laughs> um, but if it only happens once, but I cried, cried. I wrote a poem for my brother and sister and I didn't tell my younger brother and he came to my show and I oh. did it and I could like see him crying out of the corner of my eye and that made me cry. But I'd just done my crying poem so everyone knew that it was perfectly normal and <laughs> not to panic. So I definitely cried while performing. Hmm. So what, like... People who've listened to this podcast before know that I send out like a list of questions as just things yeah. to think about. Um, and I, I try not to lean too heavily. I don't know why I'm talking to the microphone. I could be talking to you. I try, not, I try not to lean too heavily on the questions. Yeah. Um, but I am like, because spoken word is so, or can be so like political and so, um, I don't know, like currents or just like embedded yeah. in whatever is happening in the culture at the, at, yes. or it, like just happening at the time. What, like, is there a defined role that a poet should fit for you? Or like, do you think that there is a defined role that poets have or should have in like society mm-hmm. or culture or just even within like the, like the communities of, yeah. Like where they're where they're practicing their poetry. I don't think so. I honestly think that like the duty of a spoken word poet particularly is like first and foremost to themselves in terms of sharing stories that they genuinely have something to say about mm-hmm. and and trying to do so in a way that is going to allow other people to relate with that story. Um I think what is really, really cool about about spoken word poetry is how diverse it is and so in that sense there probably are people that feel like they have a duty to speak out about injustices that their community faces um about political issues that are particularly 
um, important and impact them. And I think that lots of poets would say that that is, lots of spoken word poets would think that that is their duty to speak for some aspect of their identity, mm-hmm. but not in a way necessarily that means that they are a person speaking on behalf of a lot of people, just using right. really yeah. personal experiences of theirs to speak to issues that they see. And particularly here, I have loved listening to poets who come from really diverse backgrounds of which there are less in New Zealand. New Zealand spoken word scene is predominantly white. Um, and the New York spoken word scene is predominantly not white, mm-hmm. which is great. Um, and actually the competition I'm competing in is specifically for women or non-binary. Oh, that's awesome. Um, uh, yeah. So people who are gender fluid or non-binary or identify mm-hmm. as female. Um, and the final we're competing for is that the person who wins it is going to go to the women of the world poetry slam. Oh, um, wow. Which is really cool that that exists. That mm-hmm. it gives a platform for female voices and for non-binary voices. So I think it's really cool. And I, at all of the, I noticed recently, I've never been to one of the big American competitions. Um, they have one for college students. They have a national one. They have the individual world and they have whelps, the women's one. Mm-hmm. And I've noticed that they tend to run about four days and most of the nights they'll have open mics that are specifically for certain groups of people. So they'll have a queer open mic or an LGBT open mic. They'll have a youth mic for younger people that are there. They'll have a people of color mic. Mm-hmm. And that's really cool to me. They make sure that they amplify voices that don't otherwise get heard. Um, and honestly, I think it's mostly the duty of other spoken word poets to listen to the stories that they can't tell and that they haven't experienced mm-hmm. in so much as they take up space to tell their own stories. You should also be going to spoken word events just to listen. Right. Yeah. And I think that that like, well, one, I think one of the things that, that makes like the spoken word scene or at least the stuff, the aspects of it that I have seen um, so amazing. And I think potentially one of the reasons why spoken word has, has gotten a a fair amount of flack from like the, the old guard is the Mm. fact that there are lots of very predominant um, non-white, non-hetero, like non-male voices. Um, Like Andre, Andre Gibson is, you know, like one of the most well-known spoken word poets who is um i i like non-binary i think is how they identify yeah, I, now yeah i think i think they are are they yeah um but you know it's like that you have you have one of the most well-known spoken word poets that mm. like is like not is non cis non-binary and yeah. non-hit yeah um and i like that to me is and to have like not only do you have so many voices that come out of that come out of spoken word that are like non white, non cis, um, non male, but mm. it, like you said, it's like you have the immediate feedback of of an audience listening to them, and they have like there's so much, I imagine so much encouragement that comes out of that. That's like it's a yeah. ground spring of like you you your voice is totally valid. Like the things that, like your life is there's a place and there's a um there's an appreciation for this instead of being like kept out on the sides of of things yeah i think that's particularly true when you like go to spoken word venues 
here there's such a feeling of family and Mm -hmm. real support and I always used to tell people that the reason I loved my what I would call my home venue at home poetry in motion is just because it was such a safe and welcoming place for people to perform I do think I should say though that in terms of the competitive aspects of spoken word there are still huge huge problems in terms of the fact that obviously we select random people to judge and random people have biases yep and at individual world poetry slam that often results in predominantly men on final stage and it often means that the judging is racist or biased in some way that means that there are still huge problems in terms of who necessarily makes it to the final stages or wins competitions. Yeah. 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 <laughs> that hasn't been totally rectified. Unfortunately. <laughs> oh, I, Although I think, I, I think for the last few years it has entirely been women of color who win whelps. So uh, yeah, I was going to ask, have you noticed a, like a change in that trend since like coming into the, the spoken word scene? Well, like I said, so yeah, so mine's obviously different because the New Zealand scene was much smaller. Mm-hmm. But if I look at who has won, Welps seems to be doing really well in so far as um, in the last few years, a lot of women of color have made final stage mm-hmm. and have won overall. I believe that that has not been true at IWIPS at the individual World Poetry Slam. I think that it's possible there were only two or three women out of 12 or 14 on final stage last year and that the final stage could have been quite white. I don't know specifically, but I've se- I see in the community on Twitter and things like that when people react to the fact that large competitions still don't seem to reward um, diverse poets as much as yeah. the community would necessarily like them to. Yeah. Do you think that... Well, so one, I would I would like to comment on, or at least reiterate that, like, I think that it's probably every poet or every artist's duty regardless of whatever else they do to listen because i Mm. think that's like that's like that's the only way that i think that you can you can build some any sort of sense of community is that like if you are if you are actively creating space and creating silence of yourself and like other people like you to give other voices um or other people a chance like the best way to be like that to me is one of the best ways to be an ally. Yeah. It's like you just you you sit down, you shut up, and you just listen to somebody who has lived this thing instead of trying to tell them the thing yes. that they have that they have lived um, based on your own experience. Um, but I'm curious, do you like the fact that with spoken word, or I guess with slams specifically, it is a competition? Have you? felt any sort of um i don't know like negative impact on the overall like art experience in it itself because it is a like because it is a yeah the people the fact that it's like it's art that's being judged instead of art that's being presented and yeah so obviously obviously there's weirdness to that i think that most of the poets who go into it Lots of them will be like me and they will have a competitive streak and they will want to win, mm-hmm. but will also be very aware that at a certain point winning is outside of their control. Mm-hmm. And I think without a doubt, the absolute majority of poets I know and have ever seen or competed with in slams are aware that the most important thing is the stories that they're sharing. And 
and they are committed to telling those stories. I guess it's true that we might tell them differently insofar as we are trying to craft poems that we think will be successful. But one of the nice things is that usually what makes your poem successful is that it resonates with people. Right. And I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. So if you're writing a poem because you want it to resonate, because that's what will get you a high score. If it means that you're, you're more, you're more likely, I think, I think usually you can tell when someone's being genuine on stage. Right. Um, and so if they're sharing a genuine story that resonates with you, it's probably nice that that gets them high points, but right. it's probably still true that the, those poems impact people that are in the audience that aren't judges. Right. Yeah. And I've still had great reactions to my poems, totally separate from the competition when I've been doing them in slams. Um, such that I think it's fine. And I think most of the poets get it. Like they know. And Ken Arkind in New Zealand is, is often MCs things. He's a, he's a great poet that I mentioned before, Carrie's partner. Mm-hmm. Um, but he often MCs things and he's always like, it's about the poetry, not the points. And he mm-hmm. always makes a point of talking about that when he MCs. And I think that's a good reminder to poets that it, it is about the poetry, not the points. Right. Uh, it'll be interesting. I can see also that it, it gets a little bit harder when there's more on the line than just winning the slam. So right. the slam on Monday actually gets to like decide who represents that particular poetry cafe at a big international competition. So, so I'm pretty sure that the six women there are going to want to (laughs) win. I know I want to win. So, um, I'm sure that we all will. And it probably means that emotions will run high. I don't, again, I'm an emotional person, so I'm sure I will cry at some point. Um, and I have cried when I've been knocked out of slams. It's been hard. Mm Mm-hmm. But usually it's hard when I genuinely love the poem that I've performed and people haven't responded to it well. And that would probably be hard regardless of whether it was a slam. Right. Yeah. If I felt like people hated a poem that was really personal to me. That was, that's always going to be hard. Right. Yeah. Um, and that's true across all forms of poetry. If you gave a written poem that meant a lot to you to someone and they were like, we are not publishing this. That would be hard. Right. Um, Which again, it's, it's important to like, to keep in mind as much as you can, the whole like subjectiveness or the subjective nature yeah. that like it's, it's a rejection of this particular thing, not a rejection of, moment. yeah. And a rejection of you. Right. Yeah. Which is a really like yeah. when you, when you write very personal things, it's so difficult to separate out that like you from the poem. Yeah. But like you have generated this thing that you're putting out there that is a like, contains parts of you but is not like you yes absolutely i think one of the really hard things about spoken word poetry is that it's easy to feel like it's more you because they're looking at you right because you are the one that's actually judging me as a person because they did in fact just watch me as a person do something for three minutes and then they were like that deserves a six and it's like that is hard yeah and it's because you you just have to take it like you just have to sit there and have those five scores read out and there's nothing you can do you're in the room like yeah that's it would it Um, would it be more do you think that 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 those feelings would be more or less there if it was somebody else performing your piece oh i think less i think less because I'd still feel like they were judging my poem and I'd be sad, but it would feel like a 
less direct reflection on me, right? Because I know that they're also judging the performance. Right, so if yeah. the performance was done by someone else, yeah. I'd be like, that person's at least partially to blame for this <laughs> Um, <laughs> which I feel like, I feel like poets that write primarily for the page are insulated, at least in some degree from the, like, I guess so, yeah. it's just, it's just the writing. Like, it's not the yeah. performance. Cause you know, like yeah. most, most people or most readers at readings are not, um, being judged based on how they right. read. Yes. It's like, that's not the, it's not, that's not one of the criteria or even like sub the submissions and stuff. It's not like, yeah. it's just the piece. It's so it's like yeah. the, the work is standing on its own merit whereas yeah. with spoken words and, and with slams it's like it's yeah. it's the work but it's and, also your performance of it and it's the way you perform but also i'm sure that there are concerns about just it being you concerns about judges who are racist or judges who are sexist right. or uh judges who care about the way you look on stage mm -hmm. and the fear that any of those things might contaminate your work or the way you perform it. Right. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I definitely have managed to separate that a little bit. I've got, I think just over time, I think the more you do it, the more you realize that a poem will do well one day and not do well another day. Mm -hmm. I remember the, the first time it like ever happened to me badly was the, was about a year and a, it was before we moved. Yeah. About, about a year ago, a year and a half ago. Anyway, I was competing at the Wellington regional finals to, go to nationals um and i had had it was by far the best poetry year of my life i'd been on tour with carrie and mm -hmm. i'd been doing significantly more poetry and my poetry was being listened to and read by more people than i could ever have hoped um and so i felt really good about it and i'd written this new poem that i really really loved um about body image i write a lot about body positivity and specifically about living in a fat body and about fat acceptance which is something i also do academically so it's like a cool <laughs> in both spheres mm -hmm. um and i loved this poem and i did it in the first round and got bad scores Ooh. um and it became clearer over the course of the night that the judges really wanted funny poems and not serious poems oh. and the poets we sent to nationals are all phenomenal poets and they did well, but we specifically did send three funny poets. Um, and so, and unfortunately we decided to do a slam where we didn't knock people out after each round. So you had to do all three rounds. And honestly, after my scores, all I wanted was to be knocked out. I was like, I do not want to stand up to this audience. They clearly hate me. And two more rounds of poems when all they want is for me to be funny. Mm -hmm. I actually switched and did crying list next because it's mm -hmm. more um, and I felt so insecure at that point in my serious poetry because I'd done something so personal and they hated it, mm -hmm. which was a lot. It was in a church. It was a lot. It led to like crying outside the church between rounds. Anyway, I didn't get to go to national. I went to nationals to watch, but I didn't get to compete. Mm -hmm. um, and it was, it took a lot to get up and perform that poem in a slam again, um, which I knew I needed to do because I knew I needed it to like, I needed to re-own the poem in some sort of way. Right, yeah. Um, and I remember going to another slam and using it in the first round, and I won the slam, and people loved that poem. And that's the thing. It's just, I'm like, it's the same poem. I performed it the same way. <laughs> Nothing has changed. I did not return from that terrible slam and be like, I have to rewrite this poem because they hated it. Right. And I think it's only because I was three years into performing then that I could do that, that I didn't go... 
they hate this, there's something wrong, I have to change it. Right. But I had enough faith to be like, I think this is a good poem. So I have to try again. How does, or how do um, responses either from judges or from audience members affect your editing process of your poems? Because, Not a lot. <laughs> okay. As I said, so I didn't edit that one even though they hated it. Right, yeah. Every now and again, I mean, I, I like to go to like an open mic and do a poem that's new often before I will slam with it um, because it is nice to get that feedback and see bits they love. Mostly it helps with like the tightening of a poem, the 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 realizing that or, or realizing that I'm not being clear about something when I'm trying to allude to something and I don't think they've quite got it. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes they really love a line that I hadn't thought that much about. And that's really nice because I'll think more about that line. Um, mm-hmm. So it's really just about figuring out whether they got the story, whether there are ways I can tighten how I tell them that particular story, whether they understand the references I'm making um, so it's usually just little edits. It's tidying things up. It's tightening things. Um, I performed a poem last week at the heat as a three minute poem that I'm planning to perform as a two minute poem on Monday. Oh, um, the one that so you, the one that you that edited was, down. Yeah. Um, so that was really interesting. I performed it on Monday, which was my first, it was a new poem. It was my first time performing it. And I felt like people liked it and got it. But actually when it came to edit it, I knew exactly which parts were not the strongest parts. Mm-hmm. And that was as a result of having had that feedback from watching people listen to it. Right. Um, that made it much easier to turn it into what is now almost a two minute poem. Hmm. Um, because I was like, Oh, they get all the story, but this is the bit of the story they love. Like right. this is the bit that connects with them. Yeah. So that has to stay. Yeah. And anything that I think is like fluff that gets them there can go. <laughs> right. Uh, so how, so it's helpful in that sense. How, Okay, so two questions. One, mm-hmm. one still related to editing. So, like, mm-hmm. if you, I guess, like, what stage of editing or what stage of like a poem being like quote unquote done would you then yeah. bring to a, um, like an open mic or something? And then yeah. two, because I've been thinking about this since the first time that you mentioned it. How long are your like page? page wise or maybe like word count is a standard three minute poem for you sure um so in terms of the first question i'm loose like i will write a first edit and then (laughs) i'll write a first draft and read it at an open mic i'm also one of the reasons slams help me is i'm good under pressure so i can be lazy as a writer which (laughs) i've become much better as a reader which has made me a better writer which is important to say Mm -hmm. i now spend like half my writing time reading and that's an improvement um, but I am best if I'm like, well, I have to compete in a slam, so I'm going to have to write th- like these poems and I'm going to have to memorize them. And that's just too damn bad. Like that is like, I'm sitting here being like, well, the next 24 hours, I have to write a four minute poem. <laughs> and so that is just the reality of the situation. Um, and sometimes that's good for me. Um, but that also sometimes means that I do finish a draft and that night go to an open mic. And I am so, I so love performing that when I used to go to monthly readings at PIM, Poetry Emotion, mm-hmm. I used to be like, well, I don't have anything new to read, so I'll just have to write something the day before. And that was really good for me. Like, it pushed me in a way that meant that I churned out material that I often would change a lot or would edit or mm-hmm. take bits of two different poems and turn them into something else at some stage later. But I will, I think it helped that I was really comfortable with the audience in Wellington. 
I trusted them to test out poems on them, basically. Yeah. Um, whereas, like I said, I spent five months just listening when I got to New York um, and working out whether there was really a place for me on the stage here. Um, in terms of my standard length, so usually I'm just opening my poetry thing. Um, ah. I would say usually on like a A4 page, it's two and a half to three pages. For a three-minute poem? How? Bearing in mind that I often don't use particularly long lines, mm-hmm. I'm, I would probably only be using half of the page. But I'm actually wondering what that is in, in words, which I don't know if I've ever checked the word count of a poem. <laughs> I just wrote a one-minute poem, which I'm checking the word count off now because I have it open. Um, that was hard. This, this one-minute poem is 199 words. Um, writing a one minute poem is difficult I can see why they have it as a thing to like separate poets at competitions because three minutes is just a lot longer than one minute yeah. and when you tell a whole story there is not room in one minute poems I feel like and this I mean I'm, I imagine that this is just because of the, the differences and like things that we probably write about but I, yes. I would it would be it would be unbelievably difficult for me to write a poem that was three minutes long. Oh, that's so interesting. Like I I wrote one recently. Um, let me see if I can get to it real quick. Yeah, see how many words it is. Um, Figure out how long it is. I'm gonna check one of my three minute poems for words. <laughs> Let's see. I'll check, I'll check my like classic, perform it all the time. Always <laughs> almost three minutes exactly. Oh. My internet's... Uh, that's really interesting. I just find that because I like to have time to get to a story. Oh, uh, okay. This works for me. And one minute. Like, I need the audience to really connect with me. One minute doesn't feel like a lot of time for me to get people on on board. Yeah. <laughs> um, well. But well. I, I think I noticed, I watched a bunch of one minute poems online to, like, try and get some understanding of how people get an entire idea into one minute um and i spoke to carrie about it and i it looks it seems really common to one minute poems are often just extremely relevant to things that are happening okay at this time so they often are political but they're about something political that you don't have to give any background to because everyone knows about it because it's happening right now right yeah um so that's what i did (laughs) um so i my internet's being real dumb and slow Oh. Um, so I couldn't find the version of it um, in like Drive, but I posted it to Instagram, yeah. and I can. It's short enough that I could probably count the words in it. Words this. Yeah. Um, all right. I'm. Let me see. Uh, one, two, three. This is great podcasting. <laughs> Silent counting. Okay, I'm checking the. Okay, 42 on the first chunk, and one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. So 78, 78 words. This one's 500. Holy, holy, what? That's... I think 
you have to like I think we just that's just actually now that I think about it such a clear difference between page I mean how much more likely are you to think about one word and whether it actually needs to be there oh god like I there was yeah. when I was at the residency in Vermont um I did mo- so I like I had to to offset some of the tuition for the residency I worked yeah. um cleaning dishes in the kitchen after breakfast on like yeah. alternating days yeah um so I would usually like get up go do that go into my studio and write and then eat lunch and then have the rest of the day to kind of do whatever um because yeah. my goal was to do a poem a day yeah. um and one day i spent probably close to an hour on yeah. one word it took yeah. me, like just hanging i was like just and like doing like going using a thesaurus and put like yeah. s- putting a bunch of them in there and seeing what they yeah. worked but there was like and then once I got that word, the rest of the poem came, but it was, I yeah. spent, I spent an hour on this one particular yeah. fucking word. Obviously I could not do that for a 500 word poem. Right. That would be a very long time. Um, but often, I mean, I'm definitely guilty of using too many words. Yeah. When I send poems to Carrie for edits, she's like, basically I'm just editing it to take out every that that you've used that you mm-hmm. don't need. Um, but because mine is so much, because I do it out loud, and because I think I na- we naturally use a lot of words when we speak, I naturally write down a lot of words mm-hmm. because I just I, I write the poem as a story. Right. So I think if I was to translate them to the page, they would often require a lot of editing. But it does work when I say it out loud to other people. Right. And I care so much about the performance that I just I want there to be as many words as there need to be for me to right. Yeah, it's also one minute poem has a lot of like because obviously that's 200 words and this three minute poem's only 500 words in a three minute poem i'm wanting to be slow for some of it right a one minute poem is going to be extremely fast yeah um i'm actually i'm actually really curious about how how long this poem is i I imagine this poem probably clocks in at like 30 maybe 40 seconds if that yeah yeah if you oh if you spoke it out loud yeah yeah yeah, I would think so. You surely that that you could enter that in a one minute round. So does it does it have to be a minute, or it just can't be over a minute? No, it's it's that you get you get a ten second grace period in every one for going over. After that, points get deducted. Um, so you can always. So if I in fact fail to write a four minute poem, mm-hmm. I could use a three minute poem that I have already written. Okay. In the four minute round, if I made it to the four minute round. Okay. So I am, like, aware of that. Jeez. You can be under. You can't be over. Okay. I would, lo- I would love to, to do a haiku for, like, the four-minute one and just... <laughs> and just sit down. Yeah. But we're, like... <laughs> That's all you're getting. Like, each each line, <laughs> like, give the line and then sit and just, like, chill. Like eat, <laughs> and then eat get up. A, eat a snack one. and then do the next line and then sit down and... I actually have a friend in Wellington who has an awesome poem that she slams with that is 12 haikus. So haikus can be in slam. <laughs> actually, the best thing we have is that in poetry, most in the December of every year, most years we do, most months we do an open mic mm-hmm. and a feature. In December, we do what we call our haiku death match, <laughs> um, which is obviously a thing that we have stolen and do. I want to say that one of my friend's competed in like a oh no it was a pun off he, he did a like oh a, we, we have pun offs too it was a, like a competitive pun 
The haiku death match was so fun. Everyone gets handed out cards and then two poets compete on a topic with haikus and then you get to vote for which one you want to keep in with either wow. the red or the white card and they get knocked out and then they get a new topic and you give them like five minutes to write their haiku. Jesus. And then they compete against each other. It's so funny. Now, are they like like straight up and down traditional like Japanese haiku or are they more like the kind of modern... No, we technically we tend to do the traditional Japanese. I that that might be one of the few things that I would feel comfortable like competing. Competing with po, uh, poetry wise, so you could write them every few minutes. Yeah. Uh, well, you'd be good in a haiku death match. Then bear in mind the audience gets to choose the topics, so you will get some wacky topics that you have to write haikus about. But so is it in in those instances? Is it like does it just have to be? related to the topic or oh, it just you... has to be related very okay. loosely It'd be pretty chill about that i think because i feel like that's like because for me like haiku are um i've actually i've actually thought about this a lot and i've i've since extrapolated out kind of how i view haiku into just how i generally deal with poetry like whatever yeah. poetry i write yeah. and for me it's a um like I've experienced something that made me feel a thing. Like yeah. I, I've 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 gone through an experience and it it engendered in me a particular emotion or particular emotional feeling. Yeah. Um, I recognize that describing that feeling is impossible because it exists in some place beyond words. So instead, I will depict the experience that led me to that feeling in such a way that it like pings like a complimentary yeah. or like some sort of echo of the feeling in you. Yeah. Um, which haiku do in a very distilled format. It's like they give you the experience, but essentially just the framework of it to allow yeah. the reader to like, to fill in the rest of it and make it be a very, I don't know, like the super personal, like, you know, like I'm, I'm like the weird, the weird sort of like, it, it's so specific that it becomes a universal thing in a like a little miniature capsule form yeah um so depending upon the topic like for me it would be like you get the topic you draw an experience or you try to connect with an experience to the topic and then yeah. or like connect to an emotion from that topic and then write yourself backwards like into that into that emotion because mm -hmm. i like i haven't done this in a while but i used to go on um like there's a park a couple miles north of where I live that I would just like wander around in the park for like an hour and have a notebook with me and just write like, I don't know. There was one day I was out there for a couple hours and I wrote maybe like 15 haiku or so. Just like, you know, like, Oh, yeah. a cardinal. Oh, there's a pine cone. Oh, that little bit of light that's on the patch right there. Yeah. Um, Hmm. I might have to, I might have to look in to see if there are any haiku death matches in Baltimore. Yeah. You should do that. That would be awesome. Hmm. Do it. Yeah. I never competed in the haiku. <laughs> That's too much pressure. I wonder, I wonder if Sophia would do that. Yeah, maybe. Hmm. I mean, but I know she's crazy busy with PhD stuff, but. Except that she's done. Yeah. She's done. I made, I made a book of the sonnets that she wrote about her thesis. Oh my God. Amazing. So I, Sophia, so I don't know, Sophia. I'm I'm about to to share some of your biz, um, but as a as a graduation present to her advisor, she wanted to give them like oh, something. Oh, awesome! 
Um, so she distilled her thesis into seven sonnets. And That's so good. I made two copies of, of them, one for Sophia, one for her, one for her advisor. That's awesome. That's really cool. Actually, I used to share an office with, when I worked in an office in a recruitment um, firm in New Zealand, we shared an office with um, a think tank who do uh, public policy work specifically about um, the environment, a lot of it. Mm-hmm. And one day all of these art prints went up in the hallways and they all had these little bits of words on. And I was like, those are haikus. They've, they've put up a whole lot of things of haikus. What's happening? And then I found out that every time they put out a paper, um, like an academic paper, they write a haiku, which sums up what the paper is. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's so fantastic. The paper they have has a haiku and they got them printed onto all of these like art frames and put them up in the hallway. It was my new favorite thing. Oh, that's, God, that's wonderful. Oh man. Isn't that so good? Oh. <laughs> Imagine if every time you handed, handed in an academic essay, you also had to sum it up in a haiku. I, I, if I ever, so I've, I've been thinking about <laughs> going back for a PhD and if I do that, that so would what? be. Every chapter will have a PhD. will have a haiku. You're essentially writing a high bun. Like you have, yeah. you have the like the non-fictional whatever aspect of it, and then at the yeah. end you have the haiku that summarizes the like <laughs> the the tone or the feel of of the yeah. academic. God, it was I, the best discovery of my life. God, I need to I need to do that. Well, <laughs> I need to go back to school in order to do and that. Then do it. Um, yeah, but I feel I feel like the we were probably getting towards in the end of this recording, yes. um, and as customary. Yes. Um, you don't. You probably won't know this, but listeners out there will. Um, I traditionally ask two questions to mm-hmm. to all of my guests. Mm-hmm. After there was one one guest that started this, so all subsequent guests get these yes. two questions. Um, the first one is: If you have the vocabulary to describe it, what does your internal landscape look like? As in, like inside of me. Yes. If what does my landscape look like. If it okay. if if it would help, I can give you some answers that other people have okay. given. Um, yeah. So mine um, is like South Dakota badlands prairies. So like okay. big open space, big open sky. Yeah. Like a couple of scrub trees. That's about it. Yeah. Um, one of my guests was actually the the head of the my MFA program. Um, if you took the sky from Santa Fe, put in a cloud that looks like a dog and a bird flying through it, that's hers. That's pretty good. Um, okay, I, I'm getting there. Another friend, another yeah. dear friend of mine, um, her insides were swirls of different colors that were like thick. And we arrived on that mm-hmm. her insides are essentially, her internal landscape is just really richly colored frosting. Right. Um. What are some other good ones? The the one the the friend that started all of this, yes, um, her internal landscape was essentially a planet, like a sci-fi, like an alien planet that was populated by a couple of different entities. That for her, are like different voices that she draws upon in her in her writing. Um, okay, I think I've got mine. Okay, so I think it's in rings. Ooh, insofar as. Um, 
I love living in big cities. Mm-hmm. So, and I and I feel very attached to cities, and I feel very inspired when I walk through cities in a way that I think I'm supposed to feel about nature, but I largely feel about cities. Oh, that's really interesting. I love New York for that reason. I love the big tall buildings, but I also love like a park. So my favorite thing about New York is obviously that there's Central Park in the center. But so mine would be like a tiny round park mm-hmm. and it's, it's a really green park because it's a New Zealand park. So mm-hmm. it's very green and it probably has a river and it's circular. And then the next ring around it is just giant skyscrapers. So it's like a tiny park in the middle of a giant circular city. And then behind the giant skyscrapers are the mountains of New Zealand. Oh, Wow. And I don't want to walk up the mountains. That's why they're far away. <laughs> I like to climb mountains, but I love mountains are very beautiful. You just, so like, want, you just like looking at them. Yeah, exactly. So I want behind the skyscrapers to have like the most beautiful parts of New Zealand scenery. Okay. So the mountains of New Zealand. But then the New York inner city. Okay. But the tiny little park. But they're rings, so it's circular. You... And my park has a cherry blossom tree. Ooh. That is it constantly in bloom and losing blossoms? Yeah, it's 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 always in bloom. <laughs> it's permanently spring in my park. Okay. And it's a cherry blossom tree. I grew up in a house that had a driveway lined with cherry blossom trees. Oh. And I love cherry blossom trees. Have you have you gone to DC oh, for the- going to DC to see the cherry blossoms in okay. spring. Awesome. That's the plant. Good. That's my inner landscape. Wow. That have you ever read uh, Invisible Cities by Ido Calvino? No, but I've heard of it. You should check that out because what okay. you what you described it feels like it could it could be a city in that book. Okay, awesome. I'm gonna read that then. <laughs> I don't know if you're a fan of anime. I should probably start asking people things instead of just being like, I don't know if you're a fan of this or not. Um, but if you are, there is an anime called uh, Kino's Journey that also it's. it's- it's a um like a travel. The protagonist travels from like city to city, and each city has its own. It's yeah. like it's super episodic, and each city has its own like weird thing about it. Um, yeah. So like, none of them really remind me of that specifically, but kind mm-hmm. of that like the the energy or like the vibe that I get from yeah. that description feels like it would fit really really yeah. well with that that particular series. Yeah. Cool. Um. Wow, that's really interesting. <laughs> so, like, in I really, I'm so I'm glad that there are people in the world that appreciate New York the way that you do because I wish I've tried to be one of those people and I cannot do it. I think, but I think that you either are or you aren't. Oh God, yes, there's like hundred like, percent. You're either absolutely all in or you're like I can never live there. Yeah, because like I've. There are a ton of really fantastic jobs that I would love to have, but they're all in New yeah. York. And like, yeah. I I visit it infrequently enough so there's enough amount of space between my yeah. my goings up there. Like, I think I could probably do it. And then I visit, and then when and I'm leaving, I'm like, I can't do it. No, I I just I no, I can't. I think I'm really lucky with where I live in New York. Insofar as we live on the NYU campus. Oh. So we live in the West Village. Oh. Which is, in fact, like the, has in the past obviously been the artist's hub of mm-hmm. of Manhattan. Yeah. Um, which 
I love, but I've just have always loved big buildings and big inner cities and they don't really exist in New Zealand. I grew up in New Zealand's biggest city. And I also loved living in Wellington, which is like a tiny, tiny version of a city. <laughs> in so far as there are mountains everywhere, but there's also like a city. Yeah. Um, but no, I love New York and I have feel an attachment to London in the same way. Okay. You to get the like the big city with mountains in the background, you might want to visit Seattle just to do it. Yeah, that's true. That's a good call. I'll put, I mean, it, we, unfortunately we have every state in America on our list of states. <laughs> so we'll get to like five. So, so maybe Seattle will move up the list now. Yeah. If you just, if you just want mountains, I would suggest visiting Vermont. Okay. I wish you go to Vermont. <laughs> um, yeah, we wanted to go to Vermont to see the leaves, but Ooh. it was just a little bit too far for the leaves. We got some good leaves in upstate New York. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, it's like... You have seasons here. You have to understand, New, Z- New Zealand doesn't have four proper, clearly independent seasons. Oh, I'm like, from, like, growing up in New Orleans, we had a summer, yeah. and then not as hot as summer, and then, like, two weeks of winter, and then almost as hot See, as summer, and summer. Yeah. I've really felt, I've definitely felt three seasons here so far. I haven't been here for spring yet. Spring's nice. I'm excited for spring. And um, that's when we go to DC. It's what, like, spring is what I wish summer was. Yeah. I, I hate the heat, so I'm not excited to be in New York in summer. It's it's terrible. I'm not excited to be anywhere in summer, though. <laughs> I'm like, let's go to Canada. <laughs> uh, and Alex's like, let's go to Florida. And I'm like, no. no. Um, yeah. So it'll be interesting. We we're, New, New Orleans is very high on our list of places to visit. So hopefully we will get there. It's, if you if you do, yeah. I like. Yeah, I would I would not recommend going in the summer because summer in New Orleans is, um, okay. so. Like, Baltimore and New York in the summer, there's humidity. It's just yes. you know, it's like we're right on the coast. There's yes. you know, like it was kind of swampy land that was terraformed yeah. into. Um, it is nothing compared to New Orleans humidity. Um, yeah, that's like Auckland and New Zealand. It's like 90% humidity in Auckland at the moment because it's summer there. There have been times in New Orleans that it was 100% humidity and not raining. So, like, you go outside and it's already in the 90s. With and you 100- can feel that it's, like, damp, but yeah. it's not raining. And you yes. sweat and nothing happens because the sweat, like, there's nowhere that's for it. The air is already super it's saturated. In New Orleans in summer. But... The one, the one good thing about New Orleans in the summer is yeah. snowballs. Snowballs. Yes. Okay. What is a snowball? Okay. So a snowball is so you you might get like shaved ice or things that are called. I love shaved ice. Okay, snowballs are one thousand percent better than anything else. Oh my else. god. Okay, so um, I'm assuming that being in having been in New York in winter, you've experienced snow. Yes. Yes. Okay. It you know how crazy. like, like this, there's different types of snow. There's more dry, yes. there's more wet, but like the yes. ideal snow is that's that kind of in between that's like packable, but it's packable, but powdery. Yes. Yes. So imagine a styrofoam cup filled <gasps> to the top with that, that is drowned with any flavor syrup that you syrup. can imagine. Cream. Then a funnel of that cap as a cap on top of it that is then drowned with even more of the syrup. Of your choosing, which occasionally will have like condensed milk or ice cream at the core of it. 
Oh my god. That is a snowball. That is the All only... I looked for here was a shaved ice during summer and I just it didn't exist. So I have to go to New Orleans for my shaved ice. Will they give me a snowball even if it's not summer? Um there are I imagine there are probably some places there must that be are places like, that would still do a snowball. Yeah, but like in spring? You you could probably start getting them in maybe like May ish. Okay. Um going to New Orleans from May onwards. Um actually there's there's one snowball stand um or snowball like place that was the best that I've I think I've ever had that I will find the information for you and okay, let you know when they Thank do you. it. Um, but that is that is the only redeeming quality of New Orleans in the of summer. summer. Snowball. Okay, it might um, be enough for me to be honest. You also have to get a beignet when you're down there. A beignet. Okay. Yes. Um, they are. If you imagine like cake donuts that are. Oh, they are cake donuts. Well, Kim loves them. Kind of. They're like it's it's the same sort of like dough. So they're like they're yeah. big and they're flaky, but they're cut into like squares. Yeah. And then just ruined with powdered sugar. With powdered sugar. Yeah. Kim Kardashian loves them. She raves about beignets. Um, okay, a beignet and a snowball. Yes. That sounds really good. Those sound like two good reasons to go to push New Orleans towards the top of our state list. Yes. Okay. It's up there now. <laughs> of um, all the places, if I do get to go to Welps, it's in Texas. Okay, that's not... <laughs> in Dallas. Okay. It's not so far. That's like a, I don't know. How far? It's like, it's a handful of hours away from Dallas to New Orleans. Yeah. Um, I don't know, but yeah. You just yeah. want to go everywhere. Um, so my, in my last Take question it. after yes. our, our snowball tangent, um, do you have any questions or any question for me? Oh. It could be like anything. It, no topics are off the table, but any, anything that you'd like to ask me. Okay. Give me a minute. Okay. Oh. Hmm. I think I just want to know who your favorite page poet is. Oh. And and if you've seen some, who your favorite spoken word poet is. Oh, Jesus. Um. Which is obviously the hardest question I could ask you because you're a poet. Um. Um, but I also kind of want to know what, if you have like a particular area that you write about lots yes. or if your poetry is very, no, I, I have, I have over the, over the past couple of years, I've, I've seemed to have kind of drilled down into a very, mm -hmm. a very particular style of poetry, oh, cool. um, which is, so I don't think that I have, I have lots of favorites, but like, mm -hmm. I think about like. Uh, poets that I like in music, like bands and musicians that I like as like pantheons. So there's like yes. the top, like the top deities. And then there's like a bunch of minor deities yes. and then like demigods and stuff. Yes. Um, so at the top of my list, like the core pantheon for poetry yes. would probably be Mary Oliver. Um, Writing these down. Yes. Uh, Jane Hirschfield. Yes. And I can spell all of their names for you after right. the, after we record. Um, Charles Wright. Yeah. Lee Young Lee. Oh, yeah, that's the have you cried person. Um, Bei Dao, who's a Chinese poet. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And is there any other ones that I've been really jonesing with right now? Um, there is a there is a book by a poet that I have that was one of my teachers in at my MFA program um, called Nightbook. I think it's Nightbook uh, by Steve Matanley. So like the rest of his stuff is good, but Nightbook for me was really like it it shifted a lot of things for me. Um, but those are like, those are the kind of core. And then if you, if you distilled it down a little bit more, I mean, and then so like the haiku, I mean, um, like haiku masters are, you know, always kind of in and out. Um, but the people that I've been gravitating towards a a lot lately would be, uh, Hirschfield, Oliver and Wright. Um, specifically like Mary Oliver and Charles Wright. I, I seem to be kind of winding up in some weird combination of the two of them with my writing. Um, cause it is very, um, lots of it is, are, um, lots of the things that I write are very nature oriented, okay. um, but it's also like very self and internal oriented, mm-hmm. um, which is one of the, the ideas of, um, part of it, part of the idea of like the internal landscape is the, the recognition of, um, that like writing about the things that I see outside of myself, like the nature that I see outside of myself, if I can write about it and understand it, then that's a way that I could potentially write about and understand things that are inside of me. Because I feel, I feel like there's analogous structures and weather patterns Mm -hmm. and stuff that exist in and out. Um, But a huge subset or a huge, um, chunk of the poetry that I write is also very site specific. Um, mm-hmm. So for the like when I was in Vermont for the residency, the poems that I like the poems that I wrote a day or the poem a day that I wrote, um, they were all very much about being in Johnson, Vermont. Yeah. In June of 2017, like that, like that's what those poems are about. I did yeah. um, a residency in Marquette, Nebraska, a couple of years ago, and like those poems are those 14 yeah 14 poems are about like being in nebraska um because yeah. poetry for me is very much a um it's like a mean sort of like echolocation like i send it out to get a sense of like where i am and yeah like to help me figure out um like to like suss out my surroundings and like how i fit in the surroundings mm-hmm. um and i'm really really interested in uh like the interplay of like how a space is changed when I inhabit it and how I am changed when I inhabit a space. Yeah. Um, and to see how, like how my writing, cause like the, the poems that I wrote in Nebraska are, I mean, by necessity, very different than the ones that I wrote in Vermont because they're, they're dealing with two different locations and they're dealing with different things that I was going through in those, in yes. those locations. But I feel like there's a, a, like a through thread of, um, I don't know, like contemplation and like depth of interacting with stuff that exists mm-hmm. across both of them, mm-hmm. um, which is straight up like Mary Oliver and Charles Wright influence. Um, just because that's like Oliver is a, like, if you're looking for a poster child of like going out on a, a walk and writing about what you experience on a walk that's Mary Oliver 
to yeah. almost an excruciating degree. Yeah. Um, and then Charles Wright has a has a really like distanced, almost like have you ever like those movies where like a young kid is forced to live with like a like a grumpy grandparent that seems really brusque and like standoffish at first and then you realize over time that there's like oh there's actually like a heart underneath all of this yeah. you know roughed up exterior um similar to charles wright except there's like maybe like half of the heart that exists <laughs> underneath there um i mean because he's like he's unbelievably insightful with with how he in very unique in how he views things but there's still like there's definitely an intimacy with things, but there's a lot of distance between yeah. like him. It feels like very much that he's looking out at stuff. Whereas yeah. with Oliver, it's very much like she's in the, she's in the experience of the things that she's, she's a, like a part of the world. Whereas Wright feels like he's a little bit like back from the world yeah. or like, I'm too old for this shit. Sort of a, a positioning of like, yeah. like, fuck man. Um, and Kenyon, I mean, not Kenyon, um, Hirschfield is a little more, not, not tranquil and not still, but there's like a, like a, a pond or like a body of water that is unrippled quality about her work because she um is very much influenced by like Buddha. she spent some i think i don't know how long but she spent some time as a buddhist monk so that influence i feel like that greatly influences like her her positioning it's much more of a, a state of like um like contemplation or like much more even though she's talking about external stuff it feels like it's much more of an internal contemplation about whatever mm. um and as for spoken word poets um Yeah, I guess I just mean, have you listened to any that have spoken to you? And I, in a way that I am is- sure that I have, but I cannot think of, um, I can't think of anybody off the top of my head aside from like a couple of uh, Andrew Gibson pieces that I've heard, um, which I, I think for me was more of just like a, um, like like watching a subway performer. In, in so much that, like, seeing them pull off shit that you never thought that somebody could do, like, that sort of, like, I, what, like, what, how, what, how are you, what, no, what? Yes. That's, that's sort of the response that I've had, especially with Gibson, but, it, it, like, with spoken word kind of in general. I think that there's been, um, I think that that has generated in me a little bit of, like, the awe and the like I can't like I can't go far into this so much yeah. because it's just like it's so bright and it's so like I don't like I just yeah. I don't like ugh. Um but I like I I want to and I feel like that's been a a huge uh deficit in like my my poetry mm. understanding because like I've I've been thinking about um like Rupi Kaur, uh, Kaur stuff and like Instagram poets. There's a, a lot of mm. Instagram or there are a lot of poets that uh, seem to be like a part of the Instagram poet movement that have followed me on Instagram mm. um, that I would like to be, I would like to be in the point that I'm more well-versed with like what's happening out sure. there. 
Um, so if you if you have some people that you could, I mean, aside from the people that you've mentioned in the, in yeah. the so far, if you have people you could point me to, I would I would love totally. Because um, yeah, it's there have been there have been a couple of people that I've seen perform stuff that are they feel like they're the kind of like a hybrid on the page yeah. spoken word it's poet awesome. that like they've definitely published books, but when they read their poetry, it feels like it tends more towards a spoken word performance mm. of it. Yeah, I think Neil Smith is a lot like that. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and he's been incredibly successful with his written work, but he also is a spoken word poet. Yeah. Um, yeah, actually, there was a um, there was a signed copy of his like newest collection at the Barnes & Noble that's like oh, a cool. block away from... Um, yeah, or like... Um, I really love this work. I... I don't think no, never mind. I was gonna say some. I was. I don't know if uh, Ocean Vong does like if his if his reading style is is spoken word. I've yeah. I've only encountered his poetry on the page. I I don't know yeah. anything about his 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 reading of it. Um, yeah. But. Yeah. Yeah. I I mean I'm definitely so most of the people that you mentioned I'm gonna put in the description of the episode on SoundCloud. Um, I can spell it, spell anything for you. That yeah. Is- I. You know? Once once we're done, I was gonna get some cool. some names uh, spell checked, um, yeah. but yeah, like I I would really love to see, and I don't know if there are any universities that are out there that are doing this right now because I've mm-hmm. I have not done any research on this, but mm-hmm. like doing a major figures in like spoken word as a class. Yeah. So. What is cool is that at the Manukau Institute of Technology in New Zealand, mm-hmm. in their creative arts program, Carrie Rudzinski, my poetry partner, teaches there now, and she teaches a spoken word class. Oh, wow. Um, and she teaches a bunch of other performance classes as well, but she teaches one that's very specifically about spoken word, which is really cool. Yeah, because I feel like, cause like within creative writing, I, I guess like most traditional universities with creative writing, yeah. it's like not it's fiction, nonfiction if yeah. there's even that and then poetry. Yeah. Um, and there's no, like, I imagine not a whole lot of room for experimental stuff mm. or different, like, you know, no, no real genre writing in, yeah. in fiction. And I imagine probably not a whole lot of space for spoken yeah. word in like as a subset of poetry. Yeah. Um, but It would it's it will be interesting. It would, yeah, that's because it, it feels like, and maybe that's a good thing with spoken word that like to not become, like academic. Yeah, I guess so. Um, and at the same time, I feel like people who are doing who are studying poetry should be exposed to it in right some way. Yeah. But yeah, maybe I, a different way. Yeah, because I feel like it's that that weird sort of double standard of. Like if, yeah. it, if it becomes academic or in like institutionalized, it will gain yeah. a sort of, I don't know, like renown or acceptance that yes. like the institute, it's like, oh, this is now an institutional yes. thing. Um, but it'll lose something. Right. Yes. And I also think that like whatever it gains from becoming institutionalized is like, well, why, why can't it be? Have that anyway. Yeah. yeah like why can't it reach that, that point like outside of, yeah. you know, like being accepted by you know, lots of old white men. Yeah. Frightened, you know, I don't know. Whatever. Um, yeah. Hmm. 
I think that might I think that might about does it. Um, I um apparently as is customary too, um I have been leaving it up to my guests to do a sign off. Um so if there's any anything that you'd like to leave uh the listeners with um, Oh my god. Um <laughs> show, showcase those improv skills. <laughs> um no, just thank you for listening. Thank you to you. I'm so glad that there are poetry podcasts being made and talking about all different forms of poetry. Yeah. Thank you to Sophia. Yes. For putting us in touch. This has been great. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah. Go and read a poem this weekend. <laughs> at least one. At least one that, poem. That's your homework. Go, I sign off. You go, have to read at least one poem. At least, read at least one poem. And yeah. write, write an a, a appreciation paper I, on it. That ends with a haiku. Or sum it, oh no. Yeah. Read a poem, sum it up with a haiku. Yes. That's it. That's our task. Um, all right. I will, uh, I will talk to you all later. And I expect that haiku on my desk by 5 o'clock tomorrow. <laughs> Catch you all in episode 5.